XM 105, Sirius 206, the Opie and Anthony Channel. The Ron and Fez Show starts right now.
to it, Bopper. Oh, buddies. It's the Ron and Fez show on a Friday. Black Friday starting off. Um, remember, if your license plate ends in an odd, today is your day to listen to the show. If your license plate ends in an even, uh, please turn us off and we can't wait till Monday. So we can hook up and have just a great time. So, uh, odd day today. Horrible listeners as well. Well, I didn't even think of that. That's a good point. Now, Chris Stanley, have you stepped down as producer of this show, or why is Holly and St. Pete outside? <coughs> she, uh... Why has she emailed you, and you had told her she would be on the list to come up, and then uh, I catch her, she's coming through the revolving door, and she had a look on her face like, uh, if I cross the boundary here, oh, no. Chris was supposed to, that I haven't heard back from him. I hope you don't feel like I'm stalking you. And you created a very uh, uncomfortable moment with someone that is a friend she is to the a show. Friend. What's happening with you? Is it the drugs? Is it the alcohol? Is no. it the, the gambling? What is? <laughs> what happened to Chris Stanley? You were my MVP. I'm still gravy. I feel like you juiced for a while, and now you're back, and you got those fucking pipe arms. How, how did you leave our guest out front? She's she's she should be good to go soon. Uh, I that was just that was my fault. It was a slip through the cracks, and I apologize. Have you reached her? Yes, yet? I've reached her. Yes, I'm in contact with her right now. Because she had that look on her face of, I was supposed to be on with the van, and the roadies now say I have to give them a blowjob, and that's not the way it is. Not at all. Um, all right, good. So we're all straightened out. Yep. All right, it's kind of doc day today, so a bunch of people who have docs are going to be uh, stopping by. Um, Sammy in Texas, you're on the Ron Fez show. The great Ron Bennington. It's a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. I um, was listening to your interview the other day with Damian Eccles. And a friend of mine went to school with him. Mm-hmm. And, and if you knew Damien like he did, there's absolutely no way that uh, he was capable of doing what he was accused of. And as many people in West Memphis that believe they did it, as many believe they didn't do it. Yeah, it's a very weird, uh, it's a very, very weird uh, deal all the way around. But the fact of the matter is, they let those guys out. I've seen the, the three films. There's a fourth being done. Um, and obviously the, the filmmakers and celebrities believed in the kids' uh, innocence. Uh, and eventually the state got around to letting them out. But it's, it is, it is. I think, every man's worst uh, fear. And, you know, I remember when you read the Kafka books when you were a kid. Like, what am I in jail for? Who said I did this? But What's it's happening? the most frightening right. thing. You've just lost everything. Uh, well, the, the thing is, Ronnie, uh, the, the, I won't mention my friend's name, but, you know, he, he said Damien was very bright student, very intelligent, and was well on his way to becoming something with his life. You know, and it's just a shame that he was robbed like that. It is a, it is a shame, but uh, pick up his book and, and see what he's will, doing Ronnie. now because he seems to um, have 
recaptured some swagger. I was very, very happy to see him coming in looking much healthier than at the end of that movie. He put on 60 pounds, and he's not a heavy guy. He's <laughs> he's put on 60 pounds, and he's a thin guy. So you know what he what his weight was like before. He looked pretty badass when he came in here. He did. He did. Nuts his uh, angle. Um, but, you know, it's all out there. I know there are some people in that area who still believe or whatever. And, you know, I, I just, it's always tough to be the, you know, f- uh, the, the kind of freak thing. Everyone gives the geeks all the fucking love. Like, don't bully the geeks. But it's also weird when you're born into a town that you don't fit into, but you don't have glasses or fucking gay or whatever, that you just go, I'm in the metal or I'm in the punk. You're still going to get fucked with. You just treat it differently, you know? And when this, uh, when these kid murders went down, they went and grabbed the guys that they thought were the weirdos. The outsiders. So and those it, guys are it, weird. It's as old as police work. And it actually, now we're much luckier because... You have to show up with that CSI type of stuff. Yeah, there's DNA now. But back in the like the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, even the 70s, anytime a murder went down, they just went to that bar, grabbed the same guys, and fucked with everybody until somebody gave up somebody. You know. And and the great thing about this, Ronnie, is, is that there's literally hundreds of these cases that the Innocence Project is working on. The what project? The Innocence Project, or whatever it is, that, that they work actively. So you don't know. You're using the word Innocence Project, <laughs> but you don't even know well, if I that's mean, a it correct is, term. It is, it is in the best. Innocence is one of the terms. Yeah, but, but you just you don't want to give out, like, oh, I now let, let me give you a detail, Ron, that's going to help you, <laughs> and people can go to this, and it's not. It's like you went like this. Look, um, there's a way you can help. If you go to worldwideweb.com, people are standing by their internet phones to assist you. Don't jump in with the extra thing if you don't know it. There's, you have a computer, look it up if there's something you want to plug. Um, I do. I also want to uh, plug some people. Um, uh, if you go over to Unfiltered, Ken Shane has a, a benefit up. That's taking place, I guess, in Rhode Island. Uh, Hicks, why don't you give me some details on that? <coughs> it's it's happening in Rhode Island because Ken lived in uh, Jersey most of his life. It's redcross.org slash NJ slash Titten Falls. Or you could just go over to... But what I'm looking for is what's happening at the benefit. If you go over to the iBang on Unfiltered, you'll be able to check it out. We don't... Is that performance of Bob Kendall Band, Mark Cutler and Friends, and Rick Barry... One of a uh, local New Jersey artists. They're all going to be playing. All right, so that's great. Uh, I know Louis C.K. is announcing some stuff that he's going to do. There's going to be a lot of benefits going on, and I'd love to uh, plug each and every one of them. And, um, you know, it's easy once the the news gets behind you to go back to uh, the way things were before. But there's a lot of people displaced out there. There's a lot of people... Um, still without power, dealing with hardships. So if you get the opportunity to have a fun night and, you know, help people, um, it's almost like we're making the innocence.com go on for just oh, forever. Yes. Boy, you are no help. <laughs> I, there's also somebody else I wanted to plug who was at the uh, last uh, Unmasked, and that's Kyle, uh, the guy who... Is looking to do a show with us, Hicks, yeah. on DMT. Mm-hmm. Really, really um, 
good kid. He's great. The campaign stuff that he was sending in the night, everything that was coming through, <laughs> we were popping it up. It was so much fun. It was like campaign headquarters, but not just, of course, the Obama stuff, but everything that was um, either being voted up or down that night. He was all over. And I believe that he was doing all that while he was still in his car coming back from a mess. So a bunch of people uh, jumped in that night, and it was a lot of fun if you want to help out at the Interrobang. There's a lot of cool stuff that we're doing. Um, by the way, the, the link that Hicks gave us is just where the uh, the money is going. So don't listen to him. Go over the iBang, and that's the... The Ken Shane gig. Going home, benefit for New Jersey. I understand. I don't. I want you and Paulo to actually look at each other and say, <laughs> "I don't know what new drug we're taking, but we should cut back on it." Um, Guido, you're on the Ronnie Fez show. Hey, Ronnie, you sound like a million bucks, buddy. Thanks. Um, listen, the Innocence Project. It's the innocenceproject.org, and it, it is a nonprofit that actually helps people that uh, they believe are innocent. As opposed to giving them a public defender, they have real good lawyers, and they go to bat for these guys. Um, it's a great organization. And I pulled that out of my ass. So yeah. about that. You didn't, you didn't <laughs> give it to us. You just yelled out the innocence. I said the innocence project. I had you said all the three end of words. the innocence with Don Henley. <laughs> Has Holly checked in yet? She's checked in. She's walking, coming, walking in. Because I'm certain, seriously... It seems like you've caught a bit of the Paul O's, and that's not like you. You're my MVP. If you break down and start locking up, what do I have? There's no locking. It might be, they'll never lock, but it will come off the rails every now and then. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. That's probably better. All right, we can work off with that. Off the rails is worse than locking up. I don't know. Just Listen, please. baby, I'm always moving forward. Once it's off the rails. Would you please stop? Thank you. Um, Unmasked is still going on. If you want a, a chance for that. We look back into us, and we don't see where Chris Tucker has done any interviews almost ever. This is almost ever be the shit. I cannot wait for this next week, next so week Wednesday. You basically are seeing the first, you know, kind of um, thing that Chris Tucker's ever done about this. He has a t- there's Holly. Holly, you worried so much. Did you think? Here, grab a mic. Did you think that we forgot all about you? Yes. I was wandering around New York City by myself, so lonely. Chris. Yeah. What is wrong with you? Gotta tie my brain up is my problem. She's from Pittsburgh, St. Pete, and Seattle. She doesn't know this town. Like a nomad. By the way, what have you been doing here, darling? What brought you to New York? Well, um, we're here for the Exotica convention on Saturday. My friends and I, we uh, started a live radio show on the Mix FM in ta- out of Tampa, actually, and we're here to cover w- the uh, Exotica convention for our show. This is how far this has gone now that everybody's everybody has a show. Paulo, you had a show. You got rid of it. You should be podcasting. Hicks podcast. Fezzi, I don't know what, what he's doing with it, but it seems like this is the wave. So the Exotica... Conventions where it's all going down. Yes, and you're looking for big guests. Yes, and we had a guest last week on our show. In fact, she was a uh, midget porn star. Yeah, I like those because you can dress them up like kids, and then no one gets in trouble. Polo, <laughs> that I, works out for everybody. I, and then you can make up. They look like dolls. Even that's disgusting. <laughs> what the fuck? He. Why can't you just be with a doll then? 
Um, I love fucking this plastic. Uh, all right, you're on the Run of Fez show. Soon I will rise onto the Mesa. Uh, here's Charlie. Charlie, you're on the Run of Fez show. Ronnie, I think the last time I heard Polo live, back-to-back days, I'm not even making this up. I'm thinking after 9-11, and there's still smoke coming out of the building. There's still a fire down there. The last time Polo's been on twice live. When was the last time Polo's been on live twice in a row, Ron and Fed? But first of all, I don't even think when we lived in Florida, you got on two days in a row. I mean, it was always like once, and then everybody was mad at you, and then you would come back in a week, and everybody would be mad at you. Well, it was basically we closed the place down every Friday. We just destroyed the studio every week. It was <laughs> such a party that we had in there every Friday. Now, you have to remember... This was a different time. It was the early 90s, so coke was still legal. And prostitution was still legal. Damn it. And we had an open bar on Fridays. So there was a construction crew that had to come in every weekend. But but you actually would take it worse and get us in trouble with the building because you're running around nude and sometimes there would be spillage. He's a very disgusting person. But you were up after 9-11? No, I think what happened is, you know, because everybody was so traumatized, I was just there to, to add my support, you know, on a few days. You know, I don't remember that. Yeah, I think I reviewed... I don't remember you being there at all. Reviewed the Mariah Carey movie that came out that week. Glitter? Yeah. yeah, he loved it. He loved Glitter. <laughs> Weird. Um... Paulo, you saw Lincoln, and you think it's the finest film ever. It's a very relevant film because it's all about fighting in, in the house. And the, pick, in, pick your best Oscar film right now. Pick it. I would so, say Lincoln is, is, is strong, so, but I can't pick one. I got five, you know. Uh, give me your five. Well, the Silver Linings is very strong, Silver Lining Playbook. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. And, but, okay, Lincoln I will pick for right now. Um, what are your other three? There aren't any? No, on, it's not that I haven't. I just wasn't. I'm here to support Fez this week. I'm not thinking. Uh, Did you get him laid last night? I'm, we got the plan. We got the playbook. That's not what, what the playbook is. He's a hardworking guy. He's a very important man. And, and he worked late last night. So we did hit a couple. How of did he work late? He has, we've been on for 20 minutes. He hasn't said a word. I understand. But he worked late and we, we got out. I thought he was going to. You and him were going to sex it up. Why are you guys? Why did you cringe at that, Holly? Why did you cringe like it was the worst thing that you've ever heard? She's going to the Exotica thing. Oh, midget porn is so hot! And then I bring up these two gentlemen together, and she's like, she she gagged. Hey, first, what grossed you out? You can be honest. Well, it's just they're good friends, and you know you shouldn't mix friendship. They're they're not friends. We could easily have stand him. We could easily have Polo out of our lives. Can you come over to our place tonight? That would be nice. Bring some friends. Exactly. I got the whole broadcast with me. He just made an accusation that my cock wasn't ready. What does that mean? I mean, he he was he was disparaging. When he said, "Oh, forget him. He's he's nothing." I mean, I, I didn't even show him nothing. I don't understand what happened. I don't know. Well, I have missed... no idea what he's talking well, about. Well, he did make a he did make a reference off the air, and I'm. Saying, I didn't hear it. What was the reference? The reference is, is oh, he uh, he's not ready. I don't know what that meant. Paul O, who has said he's coming to be my savior and my wingman, we went out last night to a gay bar, and I got Paul O a drink, oh. and I said, "All right, show me what you would do." Well, that wasn't and his And there was word. nothing. Polo looked at me and goes, I don't even know where to stand in this place. 
yeah, well, was it disgusting? No, it wasn't disgusting. But here's the point: I, sure. we, we 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 knew we had a little more work to do when he got to his house. I mean, and it was late. And well, we, what are you saying that he's not ready? No, he's he's comes in saying he knows how to get me laid. He knew nothing. All right. He didn't know where to stand in a bar. I, I he had like, no one forget to talk the bar. to. Go to the bus station with a 2020 twin and you're going to get fucking blown. You get you're gay. Dick. Get that dick. All right. So here. Gay we, guys are banging each other on the subway. Here's the point. When, mm-hmm. we, when we, we were there for five minutes and I said, okay, do you want to go ahead and start? He says, no, it's better because if we do get started, I'll be up all night with this guy and, you know, and that kind of thing. You know, so. Doesn't know what we, he's talking we're, about. We're trying to shoot for the weekend where it's wide open. And he says, yeah. And then when I get that. That guy in there, you need to be out of there for a few hours. Is that what he said? Yeah. Hmm. You honestly think you can go a few hours, Fez? I'm just railing. <laughs> well, I'm including a lot of cuddle time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. Why does anybody want to cuddle? Maybe if they were, like, smoking meth. Cuddling with a person, to me, feels exactly the same as cuddling with a campfire. It's just... My skin. Not... Well, you know what's Stop. great when you're spooning with a woman. And I you... guess at a certain point you could get numb. Like the pain is so bad <laughs> that it just numbs you your over. Brain just shuts your when you're spooning with a woman and you get your second wood and you're you're holding her uh, it up against her back, it's kind of romantic. Oh, first of all, second wood needs to be the name of your your book. You're insane not to use that title. Looks like it's time for second wood, my lady. Oh, sexy. Um, all right, so what you're saying, two losers out on the town. Yeah, uh, yes. That's why my idea makes more sense. Bust your cherry with Paul O. It's Get re- it. Buck him. Get it. And forget it. Right. Suck him. It's right. It's right. It's there waiting. But, okay, I, we were there five minutes. I did work out a plan, but we talked about it, and we said, we'll come back. You know, everything about you looks pre-stroke today. And I can't <laughs> oh, even no. put my finger on it, but it looks like... I, if he suddenly started to grab an arm or whatever, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd yell, I knew it. That would be my first words. Last night, as he's climbing into my bed. I don't really. <laughs> what the wanna... fuck, man? He's screaming, I need a sleeping pill. And I said, take the whole bottle. You took some of his meds? No. No, he took his. Uh, apparently, he has his own that he's traveling take with. Take some of Fez's, too. I would. And for someone who's taking sleeping pills. He does not stop moving during the night. He's up and down, up and down. And I'm not used to hearing movement in my apartment. So every time he gets up, I shriek because I think someone has broken in. I have not slept in days. The gay couple. Seriously, if you think that uh, that I hung up a sign that said loser complaint, fucking this isn't it. I don't give a shit. You guys are fucking lucky enough to have each other. You should be fucking happy. Appreciate it. Yeah. Your fucking love can really be fulfilled. Hey, hey, uh, there's the fucking port in the storm. You need to get in the fucking harbor. Dock that shit. (laughs) Rather be out in the storm. Exactly. That's where you've lived. You bitch bitch when you're in the storm and you bitch when you're in the port. I'm looking for my Prince Charming. There he is, right there. You're Prince living Lucky with Charming. You're living with him. Um, here's uh, Rich. You're on Fez. Hey, Ronnie, you sound like a million dollars. Fezzy, fuck that cuddling shit. You want to get in there, dump and dance and get the fuck out of there, brother. Dump fuck all that other shit of cuddling. Nickname. 
Seriously, if you want to drive people away, Fez, start acting like you need cuddle time. It's a fucking nightmare to guys. Guys despise it. It's a, uh, to me, it sounds like it would be fantastic, oh the God. affection. Yeah, that's not what anybody's looking for. They're looking for fucking hard fucking jizzing is what they're looking for. These fucking gay guys, they go into places with masks on and fucking, you know, they're the, just the, the fucking crotches cut out of their leather pants. <laughs> They're not looking to fucking cuddle up they, to someone and bring up third grade stories. Treat- I remember this teacher I had, Mrs. DeMarco. Oh she God. was telling everybody that I was Suck the one cock. who, yeah. Shut your fucking just, mouth. You're just like, please. You're my fuck you're fucking past. <laughs> I don't care about what your aunt said to you. Um, let's go over to John. Virginia, you're on a fez. Hey, Ron. I was in the sleeper last night eating saltine, and it came to me. Is there a chance that Fez and Paulo have been dating for 15 months, and that's the reason Fez had to get a bigger place? There is a chance that everything that Fez says is a lie. To the Matrix. Uh, and then Paulo, and I think any court would agree, doesn't know the difference between truth and fiction. <laughs> I don't think he can be blamed. I think he fucking belongs with R.P. McMurphy and the gang. Oh, He'd fit right in. He's like Frankenstein when there was enough little flower petals to throw away. He threw in the little girl. But I'm he didn't McMurphy. Know. I'm McMurphy. No, you're not. You're like Colbert. If anything, you're fucking Scatman Crothers, the guard. <laughs> 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 yeah, I like that a lot. Boy, they didn't try to get too fucking racist with that, right? <laughs> and let's see. We've got everybody booked. Oh, shit. I'm looking at the casting sheet. We need four Sambos to get in there immediately. <laughs> Thing looked like it was filmed in 1931. Uh, Polo, your home state, Fez, your home state, uh, Holly, one of the states that you occasionally <laughs> live in, Florida. Uh, the Romney campaign has already said we did not win Florida. So, Fez, what's the what's the vote right now? That means it is 332 electoral votes for. The still president of the United States, Barack Obama, 206, tiny 206 for oh, Mitt Romney. That's over a third. I mean, that's that's a route. That's 126 crushing. electoral vote difference in this thing that was so neck and neck, too close to call. Well, you know, but uh, I would blame that even on the media. They yeah. missed the story up until... The last day they missed the story. They were actually bluffing me that suddenly Pennsylvania was back in play. But if you go back and read this stuff, and it's a pretty interesting story, and it has very little to do with Romney, and it has very little to do with Obama, and it's more about the kind of campaigning that went on where the uh, Chicago guys that were behind Obama moneyballed this thing. I mean, it was straight numbers. It was surgical attack. Never had a worry because they knew. Yeah, they they didn't even have a worry when he fucked up the first debate. They knew they had this thing. They were just waiting for the day that everybody else. It was almost like they pulled the trigger nine months ago, (laughs) and then the bullet finally hit. That's awesome. Election night, Uh, because no way anybody was predicting them to take Florida. No way anybody was predicting them to take, I don't even think Virginia up until the last Right, time, yeah. It? Virginia was supposed to go Romney's way. And they knew they had it. 
And Ohio was like uh, supposed to be razor thin, could tip any direction. Well, in a lot of ways, these things were fairly razor thin, but they weren't going to change. Like everything that they had, they knew they had. It's a very strange thing and uh, incredibly interesting just from that chess match type of way. It's almost like if there's a, a, a football team and you're sitting around, you're talking about offensive lines and all, and you're not bringing offensive coordinators into this thing, and you're not bringing up the fact of of, of game plans into it. Uh, the fact that you, you read this thing today that Romney said that he was shell-shocked that night, that he seemed to know less than Nate Silver. It's crazy. It's a really crazy story. And Nate Silver is there for everybody in the world to see. They didn't believe him. They thought that he was uh, a kind of a pro-Romney, uh, a pro-Obama guy. Then I have to say, we as a country are so lucky that Mitt Romney did not get elected. If him and his people cannot read polling, how in the world are they going to read the situation in Iran? In China to deal with them, how how in the they couldn't look at numbers that were available to everybody. They're ignoring information. We could well, be in another well, war. Well, is that even the same guys that you would take into your White House, or would these be different guys? Because I don't think like that. You know that this stuff has got so specific now that those guys could switch campaigns and you know what I mean? It's yeah. almost like saying like, I don't think that those guys go on with you. I kind of feel like they just run elections for you. That's just their and, job. They're professional. They'll go bounce around the country. Yeah, other and these guys were phenomenal for Obama. But I guess Fez to, to go back and I'm going to, I'm going to stick up for you here since you won't, you have to be the guy to hire the right people and the same thing has to be said across the board. If you're a manager, you're not going to be around to make every decision. Your thing is to hire the right decision makers underneath of you. So you do have to give Obama that. But, but at 330 to 206? 206. That's just a fucking route. Nobody beat, saw that kind That's of... That's landslide time, baby. Power to the people. Right, that doesn't make sense. I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, that shit might work down in the West Village when you guys are practice cuddling for Fez. But you don't, know. don't practice cuddling. And Obama takes 94% of the black vote, takes 71% of the Latina vote, goes over 70% of the Asian American vote. Mm, that's interesting. And they don't see, any, and they still think they can win on Romney's side without being able to bring in anyone, uh, 55% of women who are over half of the electorate. And, then, and they still don't see this. They don't see this as a problem. Well, they, they will today. I mean, today, uh, you know, now that they've, you know, had the punch in the nose, then you sit back and you change the way you do stuff. Um, so, I mean, I brought I, up I, Iran I, and China, but, you know, those numbers there that I just read, that just shows how out of touch you are with people in this country. If you're not trying to appeal to them. You say that. Uh, again, I'm just going to stick up for the Romneys. It's not like Obama got 80% of the vote. There is at least 47% of the country that he's not appealing to, too. If you're sitting around going, is everybody with you? It's still a pretty divided country, you know? He just happened to get the sliver on his side. 
Uh, and the the point that I was making before is they kept that sliver in nine out of the ten states that they had to win. When you were playing for ten states, which is all we did, and it and you lose nine out of ten of them, you got fucking crushed. Stunning. It's fucking stunning, though. It's very interesting. And I'm sure there are going to be a couple of uh, books about it. As a matter of fact, everyone has ordered Nate Silver's book and is trying to figure this out. the prediction book? Yeah, because it would work no matter where you are in business. There's not a business out there that you're not trying to reach more people. Holly and her new podcast are trying to say, how do we make people find out about us? Everybody's doing it. Hicks, you're like, hey, what are the liquor stores that are open? What time will they be open? I'm, are some open on Sunday? Are there yeah. blue laws? I don't know. What parties are going on right now that I could go into with an open bar? Exactly. You didn't go to that book party last night, huh? No, I, I would love to. I didn't make it, though. I Who was that from? Who Diddy sent Max that? Sports program. That was from a Teddy, I believe. Yeah, but what was the book? You should plug. Um, Paul, Paul, you're on Running Fez. Paul, you're on the air, buddy. Well, well, we're actually talking about something different than that. We we will get back to regular, uh, you know, Washington type fuck ups. But this is really this is almost like a sports thing. If you like sports, you're pretty much interested in elections. Because it's the same kind of formatting that goes into it. And it's like saying, who had the best ground game? Who had the best battle plan? Well, as much as it was a modern take on things, it still goes back to the Huey Long, the Joe Kennedy kind of politics on the ground, getting the people Absolutely. Out. The, the, the difference of that is is to know where to find them. You know what I mean? Like where to go and do you pick those people up? How do you spend your money? You've got a billion dollars. I mean, let's think of it this way on the Romney side. He spent a billion dollars and has nothing to show for it. Nothing. They'll get he nothing. He spent a billion, but then they were PAC money. Of no, more. no, I think that's all together. Yeah, yeah, that's all included. But those PACs, Carl Rove uh, threw in $300 million. Well, not of his own money. That, it, the point is, is that... The, the, but he's responsible to the, those people that he said, look, if you give me your money, I can make this happen. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we want to be able to fucking hunt malls or whatever the hell, you know, makes rich guys happy. I don't know. We want to fucking be able to to drop bombs down volcanoes. There's always something <laughs> weird that people want on both sides. Um, let's go over to Steve. Steve, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey guys, I wanted to uh, back Fez up with the uh, with, with his point about who would govern better. I, I get that, like you know, one campaign runs better than the other, but when one campaign completely dismisses statistics, math, science, logic, facts, it does give you a window into how they'd operate when they're running things. No, I, I, you could always say that you basically get this pretend war that you have to win. And what kind of commander-in-chief would you be if you're not getting the intelligence, if you're not believing the stuff that's coming back? Because if you did read Nate Silver, uh, he picked, it looks like now, 50 out of the 50 states. Now, having said that, everybody would be able to pick 40 out of the fucking states. There was 40 that were already done. So... To go back to it, did he pick 
from there, he, he seems to have had it really down. It'll take a lot of time for all that information to go in to see what uh, and how close he picked it. But if uh, he nailed it again, that's two elections in a row where whatever this formula is that he puts into it has been dead on. Right. But will things change within four years where that still works? See, that's the thing that's happening. If you go back and listen to the Republicans, they were like, hey, we thought there would be a lot less Asians coming out. We thought there would be a lot less young people coming out. One of the things that Obama seemed to do this time is to spend his money quietly more than that whole kind of rock the vote campaign and all that. They put their money in different places. Um, basically in small kind of grassroots things. It's it's kind of interesting to see, but I will tell you, you'll get that advantage once, and then the Republicans will pick up on it, and you'll have to go nowhere. Because in my lifetime, it was always, hey, the Republicans are better at organizing than Democrats. The Democrats' heads are all over the place, that they don't have that laser kind of logic. And this time, it looks like the Romney people... We're closer to monkeys fucking a football. Well, I think because the, they were not paying attention even that day. Right. Yeah. That these numbers were going to come th- through so much so that they weren't telling their candidate. I think a lot of it also has to do with instead of anyone following, none of us following any kind of mainstream thing. And if you followed Fox and Drudge, you thought this was pretty much in the bag. Drudge if was you just were, if you only me. got your news. From Fox and or Drudge, you were like, Romney has been leading. Romney's going into this. Look, uh, 22,000 people showed up here. And you would have been as, as shocked as a shower bench, quite frankly. Because that shower bench is like, yay, Fox, we've got it. Did you see what Billow had to say? And then now you find out, no, you guys haven't paying attention. And um, they were all going by gut. Peggy Noonan, I just have a feeling... You know, I don't and know. It's... you know, I mean, I'm not going to say that Peggy Noonan is an idiot. I don't think that she is. I think that that they just didn't know what the other side was doing. We got calls here from people in southern Ohio who said, all we see is Romney signs. This is going to be killed. They calls. didn't know Constantly. that people in the inner city were actually going to be physically bust, <laughs> physically moved from one place to the other. You know, they just didn't know it. See, and that's the thing. The Republicans had the money, but there's this whole groundswell of demographics changing that they did not read, which was the big the big factor. Charlie, you're on the Run of Fez show. Listen, Jack. Be mild. Here's Dave. Dave, you're on the Run of Fez show. Uh, yeah, I was going to let you guys know that there's actually videos out right now uh, where a programmer has testified about rigging the election uh, voting machines. And uh, you guys should check it out. Yeah, so, this is after every election we ever had, yeah. including it's Kennedy, including all the way down the thing. Well, if you want to figure out how to win, a, if that's the way that you play the game, then you got to be the guy who rigs it. That would still fall into what I'm talking about. Seriously, it would still fall into it. That still means that you're getting your ass beat if you're letting someone rig machines on you. Um, here is Mike in Jersey. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey guys, how you doing? Yeah. Um, I've been listening and I like everything you guys are saying, but I also want to make another point that um, I think it's also like a bit of campaign strategy how all 
how Obama was on, like, The View or David Letterman. A lot of shows that get a lot of viewers. So I think that also kind of brought the ball into his court a little bit. Like, you know Yeah, I mean, they don't the go on any of those shows for no reason. You know what I mean? They, they break it down. Uh, this is all just straight marketing. It's honestly a lot less ab- about message and a lot more about marketing. Think of how many ketchups are out there, but how many brand names can you actually name? It's crazy how much of that stuff just sinks into your head. Um, here's Carlos in Texas. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, buddy. I voted for Mitt Romney. Uh, I'm one of those uh, crazy conservative Latinos. I was looking at this, and it's not the demographics why the Republicans lost. They lost because... There are people in our country that wants free stuff. That's it. They I know that's the Bill O'Reilly thing, and he says it every oh, night. So but ridiculous. It's, it, 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 just instead of getting angry, just go back into it. But when you hear the free stuff thing and you start to fucking repeat it, you have to say to yourself, who, what, what is the person selling that to me? In terms of free stuff... Who's got more free stuff in this world than sons of bankers and sons of lawyers? White people have gotten free stuff forever. White people have gotten a nice fucking ride. So you can't get fucking pissed. If you watch Fox now, they are sitting around fucking complaining that Obama ran a dirty campaign and, you know, besmirched this wonderful man. For the Fox people to sit around and go, how dare you do this? When basically they say that Obama's not from this country, that he's a murderer, blah, blah, blah. I'm not even saying that you can't say those things. But at the same time, if you're sitting around doing racial jokes and then someone does something to you, you can't act like you've crossed the line, my friend. How dare you attack the fine Irish people? Have you not heard of the potato famine? Yes, it's an ugly fucking game. But if you're if you're repeating the Bill O'Reilly free stuff thing over and over, Bill O'Reilly's gotten plenty of free stuff in his life. Look at, I've gotten at, plenty of free stuff. Look at any NFL stadium this weekend. Those stands are going to be filled with people that got free stuff. It's true. You can't get in to a regular ball game and get decent tickets unless some big corporation uh, gives you those tickets. It's That is okay. But the thing of, oh, my kid's sick. What am I supposed to do? You. Work for him. Yeah. You fucking work for that guy, MK. You're not getting shit from us. That's, that's what. Did he just scare you a little bit? I saw that, Holly. He he does that. What? He does it. Well, oh, you're frightening. How am I frightening? It's a small room. <laughs> it's a small room for you to be acting like that. <laughs> it's just nice to know that you are animated, that you don't just sit oh, there. Oh, yeah. yeah. I get worked up sometimes. That's good. He, it looks like you're doing a, uh, a movie right now called The Crow Needs a Bromo. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's get revenge on those guys, dude. What is this uh, coat all about? It's cold out. This is my winter coat. Yeah, but we're inside now. Oh, all right. I like the buttons. <laughs> those are really nice. Thank you. You want them? Sure. I need them. The button, the coat. Were you, in the, were you in the Navy? <laughs> no, I was not in the Navy. You saw Cracker Jacks? <laughs> <laughs> um... Here's Tony. Tony, you're on the Run Fest show. Hey, how's it going, guys? Yeah. Uh, if I could get a second, I've got actually two quick things. Uh, everybody keeps saying we need a third party. There really is, if you want to count it. The Tea Party is the far right. Then you've got regular Republicans, which are the moderate right. 
And then you've got the left, which even the really liberal left can get together with the moderate left. That's the difference. The Republicans are divided right down the middle, where the left will get together regardless. Well, you you say that, but the, the Tea Party wasn't going to vote for Obama. They had to vote for Romney. Right, but there's a lot of the moderate right, which a couple of my friends are moderate right, that jumped over to the Obama side because they're like, no, we can't get behind the crazy shit the Tea Party thought. But are you telling me that somebody thought that Romney was in the Tea Party? Romney is pretty no, moderate right. Well, because of all the, you know, the anti-abortion, the taking away women's rights, taking away all See, this. That, is, that, that I will agree with, that he that the Republicans will never get a majority of the women because... There's plenty of women who don't want to give up that right. How are you that way, or you don't worry either way? I care less. You don't care who if abortion is uh, legal or not. Well, I think that it should be. I think that yeah. everybody, you know, I believe in choice. That it, you know, it's a woman's body and she has a choice. And right. I know a lot of the women that I follow on Twitter and stuff that I was reading, you know, through the election time that. It didn't seem like any of them were for Obama they or mm-hmm. for um, Romney, I mean. Based on that one issue. Mm-hmm. And see, the Republicans fucked that up. That, that they would, if, if they leave that on the table, they're going to, to, to lose a certain amount of women every single time. Because it's important to them to not act like, oh, no, I really do want you in charge of my body. And the weird thing about taking that angle of we're going to de- we're going to take away a woman's choice, the weird thing is how you're trying to get men to come along with you on that. You're not you're doing giving nothing to the women. You're trying to attract men by talking about the women. No, I, I I'm not. I, I'll disagree with that. I think that they're not trying to attract men with that. I think they're trying to uh, attract the religious right. I think that becomes that religious thing rather than people just sitting down talking. Um, so I don't think men want to, to tell women that they have a choice or not. I think religious people do. And that includes some religious women as well as some religious men. Uh, I do know Catholics who go like, please, I don't, give, don't even start on that. You know what I mean? Like They're Catholic in every way, but they're not going to, to be a part of that. Um, uh, Pat, Pat, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, uh, Ron. Hey, I was just wondering what you and Fez think. If uh, did you guys vote for Obama because, or did you vote for the Democrats because of their policies, or because of Obama? And then in 2016, if the Democrats don't pick a minority candidate, what's going to happen then? You're going to have two white guys going at it again. Well, not necessarily because there's plenty of people who think that the Republicans will come back with a minority uh, candidate. Uh, I think, personally, for me, I think this was election to vote against, not for either candidate. Uh, I totally get the people who were against uh, Obama. There was plenty he didn't deliver, specifically to the people who delivered for him. And there was plenty to vote against with uh, Romney. Some of it social issues, some of it just uh, the economic issues of, oh, the cuts should work from the top down. You know, should, the, should, the, should we take care of people from the top down or from the bottom up is, was a big part of that. Here's what weirds me out about Obama. Now that there are no, not another election, he can become himself. And this thing that's up on the Internet today frightens the shit out of me. 
second time in a row, you've got Big Femme uh, shedding girl tears. Uh, here's Barack Obama talking to his crew. We don't have it now? It's pulled? It got, just got pulled. I got to get you guys to prep this. What I want to start and do is organize a producer's meeting so we make sure that we have everything ready to go before the show. Um, here is uh, Anthony. You're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron. How are you doing? Good. Hey, I just wanted to kind of add to what's been uh, said already. But, um, you know, the Republicans next election cycle, they will copy the money ball and they will try to do the same thing that the, Republic, the Democrats did. But the problem is the message. The message has not changed. And I don't understand this uh, perception out here that somehow minorities are lazy people uh, and they, they forget that there's more, you know, trailer parks than there are ghettos. I mean, the term of a lazy Mexican, I haven't seen a lazy Mexican. I mean, they hold three well, or four. I, I, yeah, I don't know any, as far as Hispanics go in this town, nobody works harder. Nobody is moving faster and spending less time socializing <laughs> than those little Hispanic guys that, uh, I, from all that I know, make their money, send it home, and keep uh, grinding. Have, yeah, has, and that money actually does a lot more good for their thing than it would up here, you know? Someplace where the dollar is worth more. Um, let's go over to um, Jack. Jack, you're on the Run of Fest show. Hey, Ronnie. Yeah. You know, every, everybody complains about the social welfare in this country, and yet it does kind of sway a certain uh, part of the, the voting base. But, uh, you know, social welfare is just a drop in the bucket compared to corporate welfare. I mean, an absolute drop in the bucket. Until we wrap our heads around that, and start fucking emailing Bill O'Reilly about his, that his blowhard stupid talking points about that. We ain't going anywhere. Nowhere. It's a very good point. Um, the corporation thing has got to be um, dealt with. And I don't know how you can call yourself. It's what I like about the, the libertarians, that they don't think that the corporations are even capitalism anymore. They think that it's moved into another place. Now that the election is over and we can get out of all the shitty talk, I really would, I think it would be great for people to start getting together and talking about, like, what is really wrong with this country and stop fighting over these little personality things because it drives me nuts. Um, Michael, you're on the Run of Fez show. Republicans, just from running any kind of election, when they put ads in the paper and talk to other individuals, if they ever got rid of abortion, what are they going to spend their money on? No candidate could ever get rid of abortion, because then what other issues are they going to bring up socially to compete with the Democrats? Uh, one thing that they need to do then, if they have no plans on actually going through with this, they should stop talking about it. They should just say to, the, to these churches, I know you're upset about it, but it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen, dude. It's been around since the 70s, legal. And the reason why they made it legal is because it's too much of a nightmare illegal. I feel the same way about pot. I feel the same way that we're sitting around that saying drugs are outlawed and these two fucking idiots are sitting down eating their pills last night um, because that's what they want to do rather than live in a lifestyle where they deal with themselves but if people would rather just eat a pill, 
Who cares whether they right. have a and, doctor's and, note or and not? And who could possibly argue with marijuana? It's it's cigarettes and alcohol are just in the same exact league. There's hardly any difference if you're talking marijuana. First of all, to me, I don't give a fuck if you're talking heroin. You say to somebody, you shouldn't do heroin. That's as far as the argument can go. They're going <laughs> to do heroin if they want to. You lock them up or do whatever you want. The guy does heroin. Right. Until he, he figures it. out. I'm fucking up doing heroin. That's the clear what first are you doing? step, though, is marijuana is the first step. Then we, the, it, it's the stepping There's stone. There's no step. Heroin. The step is this. Dude, you shouldn't have an ice cream. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's the same exact thing. Everyone knows that you don't need ice cream in your life. What are you doing ordering ice cream? Tastes good. And yeah, that's what fucking heroin is. It solves the same thing. Marijuana is the same thing. Feels good. These dog. fucking pills that doctors are giving Fez and uh, Polo. It's the same thing. That doctor's basically saying, I'm going to give you a half gallon of ice cream. If you feel upset and people are mean to you, I want you to start eating it. And then you'll be focusing on the ice cream. It doesn't make your problems go away. So the state... I'll end up overdosing. Exactly. You have. As your stents. It's the same exact thing that you do. The, the states are passing these legalization laws, and the federal government is still not even going to come close to it as far as legalizing. The federal government may go after them and say, we're not believing in your fucking rules. It's, it's a clusterfuck. When Washington, they legalized marijuana. But if you get pulled over or something and, you know, you're allowed to carry an ounce. Yeah. They can test your blood to see if it's in your bloodstream, and then it would be the same thing as if you got pulled over for drunk driving. Right. I don't know why you want to go anywhere if you're smoking pot. Just stay at your house. It's fun to drive around sometimes. You're just fucking stoned. Oh, you mean Beaver Valley? That whole fucking thing of this was us in high school. I'm going to get a fucking house like that one up there on the hill, but I'm not going to have the maid's quarters that close. What I'm going to do. I swear to God, we did it almost every day instead of going to school. Yeah, we looked Chester. at different mansions. Fucking driving yeah, right. Chester Holy shit. Did you see yeah. the size of that house? I don't. I don't like the waterfall in the pool. I wouldn't fucking do it. Gaudy. Yeah, it's stupid. I don't want pillars. And you're just arguing about that instead of working towards anything. No, I want to get high. Here's um, the fucking crybaby in chief. That come out when you throw a stone uh, in a lake. Uh, That's going to be you. And I'm just looking around the room and I'm thinking... Wherever you guys end up, in whatever states, in, in whatever capacities, whether you're in the private sector, the non-for-profit, or uh, some of you decide to go on. And, and, and what you describe... It's fucking sobbing. All right. Comfortable or uncomfortable? Um... How does that make you feel? I don't, I don't like it. Polo? Uh, I find it's an emotion he's opening up. Yeah, I don't want him to. Okay. Holly, you want to see a guy crying like that? No. He should be stoic. He's a fucking president. Right. He's uh-huh. running shit. He's nuking people. You don't us. fucking see Abraham Lincoln in Lincoln movie. I don't understand that. I've tried everything I can do with the slaves. <laughs> and now no one's blaming me. I don't know what to do. Get together, Lincoln. Come on. There's a war going on. Nobody wants to see their dad crying 
The worst thing ever. Worst thing ever? Worst thing ever. I think it was a sweet, sensitive human moment that the president had. Yeah, that's not, that's not what we're looking for. As a matter of fact, it was two in a row. He did it just the other day. Maybe if Romney had one of those moments, he would have done a little bit better in this election. That's just stupid talk. Instead of getting beat by over 120 electoral votes. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about now that he's your president. I don't know if it's good for him sitting around sobbing. <laughs> what do we need to break here, Chris? You, you and fucking Paul are driving me nuts. What's going on I'm in saying, that corner? I think I'm going to have a guest outside. Well, why wouldn't you walk outside and find out? Looks like we do. So we you, should breach a break. I got to fucking get my producers together and I'm going to go over how to run a show from this point on. You guys in for this? Yes. How to set it up, how to prep it. Holly will be able to tell you she's running her own deal. I'm telling you, I could shape up this place. Uh, who Voss has stopped by? Yes, Voss, Voss and Bonnie. Okay, great. Let's break. Uh, or do we need to break or just bring them in? We'll break. It's Ron and Fez show. Ron Bennington, Fez Wally. This is the Ron and Fez show. More next. Filmmakers, Rich Voss and Bonnie McFarlane are here. I like that. I like yeah, it is nice, isn't that. it? Yeah. Filmmakers. Yeah. Not comedians, not funny people, but filmmakers. That's, it, you know, I have a new title. You do have a new title. And now you should do stuff like, as a filmmaker, this is how I feel about it. You know? Yeah. Uh, tomorrow, this finally, uh, you're putting this How many? How many years are we talking now that it took to put Almost this together? Almost three and a half years. See, people don't realize that. They yeah, don't realize that a doc takes so long. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you have 60 hours of tape that has to be... And, She's so brilliant. Bonnie not only as went, a filmmaker. Yes, as, as a, a filmmaker. Um, Bonnie not only went through everything. Everything has been. Uh, what do you call it? She logged everything. Wrote everything. Right. It's, everything is written. Sixty hours. It's called transcribing. She's, and yes. yes. <laughs> It's written. Yeah. Yes. You scratched it out on cave yes. walls. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's our floor has marks in it. Came up with my own system. And, uh, <laughs> it really worked well. Oh, the, but do you, buddy, do you end up hating everyone who's in the film after looking at Well, when you small? start transcribing, it takes yeah. about, it's, you know, for a one hour interview, it takes about three hours to transcribe. Yeah. And at the beginning, you're excited. You know, you're like, oh, this person's saying right. everybody just ends up repeating themselves. Right. And at the, by the end, I would I was I, shut up. Shut up. <laughs> You've already said that. Stop. Yes, yeah, so I did. I would yell at them. And then you then you also see everybody's verbal tics and things when the, the, the you know what I mean, people. Just starts to stick out right. to you, you know. So one of the things they do in any kind of interview that is ever transcribed is try to fix the person. Where if you, <laughs> what you're doing now, you know, they try to edit it. Means I'm going to try to sound as educated as possible. That's funny. I didn't do that. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I you left it in. Yeah. Trying to do that with me since we've been married. <laughs> right. Shut up. Fix. Um, <laughs> no, I uh, I also felt like when I was doing the uh, transcribing that I was. 
I, I, I could have maybe for a small fee told them exactly what was wrong with them psychologically. Right. Like I felt like I got so much inf- after watching it slowly and rewinding and getting that phrase again. And you really figure out what bothers people, you know? It's really interesting that you say that because that's all psychologists does. The thing that your friends and family won't do is pay attention to you <laughs> yes. and honestly listen to you. What was that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, you uh, put this together, but the thing about a documentary is you don't know where a documentary is going to go no. No. the way you can control a film. Well, I didn't took, even try to control This took so it. many different turns. I mean, we had probably t- two or three rough cuts before. There's probably 20 yeah. people that we interviewed that didn't end up in the I final. Mean, people, I mean, big big comics didn't yeah. make it into the movie, you know, because it didn't go with the flow or yeah. it didn't. They you didn't know, add something. Yeah, they didn't add, you know, and I, I mean, it's, you know, whatever. Big deal. Jeff Ross, Margaret Cho. But what I'm saying <laughs> is... Uh, well, Margaret Cho didn't make it in because she was filmed poorly. I'm not going to say who filmed her. Uh, neither am I, because then um, I would be throwing myself under the right. bus. Uh, <laughs> He's smart. He knows when to but keep I mean, it quiet. But, I mean, but everybody's in. There's so many people. I mean, so many major comics. Joan Rivers, Sarah Silverman, Wanda Sykes. Chris Rock, Dane Cook, uh, uh, Joy Behar, Susie Essman, Lisa Lampanelli. Lisa Lampanelli. Yeah. And that's the beauty of taking three and a half years, that you can't get all those people yeah. in six weeks or wherever you think. Impossible. Like, if you're going to do this as a TV special, right. you know what I mean? If you were going to do this for 60 minutes, you would have, you'd come up with the idea, and a month or two months later would have to be out there. But what you can do in a documentary is take the time to get as many people as you could possibly get. Did anybody go out there and surprise you by saying, "Oh, women aren't funny"? Or yeah, oh, it's funny because in Patrice. the beginning, yeah. one of the one of the you know, I talked to this other filmmaker, and he said, uh, "He goes, the problem that you're going to have is getting people to go on record saying women aren't funny." Yeah, and I was like, "Really? Like yeah. I didn't even think of that as a." But we had zero problems <laughs> because you're and dealing with comics that don't mind. Yeah, like but they're even not club dealing, owners. Yeah. yeah, regular people aren't going to say that. But what club owners were also ready to say, women aren't funny. Oh, sure, because they want to uphold what they do, which is all men all the time. So they're like, well, if there were funny women, we would use them. Right. Owners were basically, too, saying they don't sell as many tickets as men. They were using that, you know, as... That if people call up and a woman's on... Do you think that's true? I think it's true for anybody. If there's a black guy on, there's probably people that don't want to go see that. If there's a, you know, a Jewish New York style, uh, you know, in-your-face comedian, uh, people probably... Not for me. There's, it, you know. Yeah, it is really funny that they will still go with the, you know, like women take back the night type shows. Like, if you yeah. did that in any, like, if you ever said, hey, come see four women architects, everybody would be like, what? Yeah. What are you, fucking sexist? But nightclubs can get away with that. Yeah. Well, like, there was a part of the movie we took out in the extras about, uh, I would never hire a female lawyer, you know. Like, right. Female lawyers stink, right. you know. It's only in, in, in comedy people... Don't well, it's kind of so. sanctioned misogyny to talk about right. sense of humor because, I don't know, nobody, nobody really gets hurt on that one. Well, I do. This is still prejudice. I think I get a little nervous with a, uh, a woman pilot, even though that you know she passed all the same tests. If you walk on oh, and yeah. she's the pilot, you're like, oh, boy. Well, I remember one time I was waiting for a bus. This was right after college, so, and uh, 
it was late and I was getting really angry and uh, pulled up and it was a female bus driver. And I remember in my head going, of course. Yeah, and then right. I was like, why did I think that? Yeah. I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> because you're a mean person. I know. Yeah. I just, well, that makes sense. So the, the screening is where? Where is the screening? Caroline's on yeah. Broadway. Uh, and it's at 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. It's a part of the New York Comedy Festival. And mm-hmm. it's a... Kind of just a sneak peek showing. We literally got the DVD yesterday, uh, last, last night. night. 12.30. Uh, yeah, we got it messengered to his room, his hotel room. And uh, yeah, it's a little cutting it close, but we got now, it. Now, yeah. the same time you guys are doing that, that documentary film festival is downtown right now. What's the name of that, Chris? Do you know? Doc NYC. Yeah, Doc NYC. Sure. You should hook up with some of those we people. Didn't even, uh, we didn't even know about yeah. it. We didn't even put it into that. And that's going on right now? That's going on right now this weekend. A couple other people uh, yeah, are stopping in here today. Here's the thing with our doc. It's not, <laughs> well, one, they don't have who we have. Two, <laughs> it's not an empowered doc. It's a comedy, too. It's more of a, it's a comedy right. documentary. It's funny. Like, it's not like, hey, we're women. We're, you know, it's not about, you know, empowerment or it's just, it's me and, yeah, and me we, we don't an really take the topic too seriously. Right. Yeah. But the women that you're talking about are funny. They're a, they're not funny, but they are, they are funny, but they also had to go out and battle this. Each one of them individually. Yes. yes. Like yes. when you talk to Joan Rivers and I, I have before, she, you know, it was really tough in those days mm-hmm. to basically not get raped. Most of the time, you know <laughs> yes. what I mean? It would be so far of, oh, good, I, we're going to book you. By the way, you get to blow me when you yeah. leave. You know what I mean? She had to yeah. battle that kind of shit all the time. But uh, she's not a victim at a- all. At all, you know. She just, yeah. that's, well, I just work a little harder and I'll just, you know. Well, isn't that the funny thing, though, that kind of uh, is of stand-up uh, comics, that they get victimized so much, whether you're male, female, black right. comic, whatever, that they do, they are survivors. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's... Uh, yeah, because we deal with so much bullshit. I mean, comedy. Watch too, your language. Comedy. Please. You all you it it because it's you. So all you hear is no, 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 no. You know, right. you get yeses, but the nos, and you take it personally because they're saying no. No, you, we're not using you, or no, you're not good enough. No, you're yeah. not. But right. it's not yeah. even just no, not you're not right for our club. Yeah. Sometimes they'll say no, you need to get out of the business. I like never, they right. will go so far as to, I remember one guy telling me he goes, "You'll never make it in this business." Yeah, but I like, changed my you? mind. Right, and then we got married. <laughs> no, I yeah, they do. They, they, you know what it is, especially club owners when they have single clubs. A lot of comics go through those clubs, and then become big stars. And never come back. Right. And they resent that. And their only form of power in this world is that one club. So they take it out on the new batch coming through. You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, that happens all over the country. Wherever, you know, uh, like, say, Dennis Miller's from Pittsburgh. After he got Saturday Night Live, he would never even walk into the Pittsburgh Funny Bone back then. Not Uh the chain. You know, he couldn't stand those guys. But they were mean to him as he was coming up. Yeah. You know, and and these club owners, some of them, not all, some are great. You know, yeah, some are really good. But now nowadays too, there's so many of them that it's like doing, you know, it's like a Walmart chain where you're just how many seats did you sell? You know, yeah. So comics have a lot of anger, resentment. They're dealing with a lot of negativity. You know that throughout. You know, but see, the, the thing is, is that you're not kind of judged by other comics. You're not judged by people who do the same thing as you. Yeah. You're judged by people who sell beer 
and, you know, try to... It's the craziest thing just because you've opened up this club. Now you can sit around and say what's funny and what's not. That's insane. I had a club owner in Seattle where she's from. I'm not lying. Said, uh... I went to get rebooked. He goes, uh, I'm not from Seattle. He's no, talking about I mean, someone else. He's talking about Holly. I said, uh, I'd like to get rebooked. He said, nah, I can't bring you back. The wait staff didn't like you. Really? <laughs> the fucking soda jerk didn't like me? Go fuck yourself. I've been doing this for 30 years. And he didn't even cancel me. I, I was g- going to be there in a couple months. And I look on the website and I go, that's not my picture. Mm-hmm. And I call him. He goes, yeah, yeah, I can't bring. Well, at least call me to tell me you're not bringing me. You already book- rebooked me. And he goes, yeah, the wait staff didn't like you. You know why? Because maybe because I didn't hang out with them. I don't drink. And, and, you know, maybe I trashed one or two as I walked by jokingly. Mm. But who who would say that? That's Maybe you know, I raped a girl. But whatever, whatever happened, happened. <laughs> you know, the wait staff didn't like. You know, you hear so many of the dumb excuses. If you have a corporate job, I guess, I don't know, maybe once a year, maybe twice you go for a promotion. Yes or no. If it's mm-hmm. no, okay, once. You heard no that year. Comics deal with a lot of bullshit. You don't right. even know once a year, you know. And even when you're at the top of your game, they it doesn't still matter get, yeah. what level you're at. You know, there's, there's gonna, still people that are weighing in whether yeah. you're good or not. Yeah, right. I mean, I wrote for Chris on the Oscars. He's hosting the Oscars, and there was some. There was, it was lose lose for him because either he's going to be too edgy right. and piss off, or he's not going to be edgy enough and piss off his fans. You know, I mean, his fans know what he does. This is what Chris does. You know, so. It doesn't matter what level. You're going to... Someone's not going to be happy. The rejection is always going to be there. But it's, our movie's not like that. Anybody that sees it has loved it. <laughs> Every, even the waitstaff in Seattle. The waitstaff in Seattle gave this a thumbs up. Oh, oh, here's another one I heard. Here's a good one. Mm-hmm. I was working Denver to Comedy Works. Go fuck yourself. Uh, it was Halloween weekend. Okay. The report back to my manager. I'm still available, by the way, <laughs> uh, Denver. The man, my manager at the time, the report back was, he does too much crowd work. Really? They were in costumes every show. Okay? <laughs> there was a guy in blackface. How am I not going to say something? Really? He did crowd work to the people in costumes. No. Maybe I should have just tap danced. You know, what is their problem with crowd work, though? It, that's, that's another bull, because that's an art in itself right. as a comic. Uh, yeah, I think it might know, even be more difficult to do crowd work than to do material. Then they just come up with stock excuses. Mm-hmm. You know, but maybe, I think they think you're fooling around if you're doing crowd yeah, work. Yeah, like I'm not serious. I, let me tell you something. I, I'm doing material in between crowd uh-huh. work. But, you know, that was he, he was doing crowd work. To the clown, to the clown with the two heads. You know, ugh, they're the worst. And here's the thing. If you were selling out these clubs, selling them out completely, they wouldn't care if you lit the waitstaff on fire. Absolutely. Okay? Because it's all about numbers and money. It's, it's exactly true. It's why it's weird to get feedback from them when they would book the fourth lead from some sitcom yeah. that people would come out just to have yeah. their picture taken with somebody from TV. They would book them in a heartbeat. Yes. If Cameron Diaz called a club and said, I want to do comedy tomorrow, they go, come down. Yeah. You, you, can you do the whole weekend? <laughs> have you ever done it? No. That's okay. We'll put somebody in strong in front and behind you. <laughs> you know, whatever. They... They're just, yeah, it's, you're right. That is the funny thing, though, is that somebody like Cameron Diaz will say to themselves, I want to do, you know, yeah, I think I'm going to go out for a while and do stuff like that. You see people doing that type yeah. of thing where they turn like a lecture, you know, like they, they might do a funny lecture and then all of a sudden that's comedy. 
It's yeah, I crazy. Could I could do that. Yeah. yeah. I guess in a lecture, you don't have a check spot <laughs> and a middle act that runs to the stage, okay, and juggles his family, okay? You know, it's Well, just... I think, though, like, some people start doing stand-up after they get famous, and um, I don't know, it always bugs me a little bit, the way they, you know, oh, I, I went on the road, I did the clubs. It's right. like, you didn't do the clubs unless you did it when nobody knew who you were. It's really true. It's, a, it's an entirely yeah. different thing. And, 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 and Bonnie, that just doesn't mean Michael William Black because he's good. But there are, <laughs> he's you know, in he, our movie. <laughs> yeah. But he's definitely one of those guys that after they did it, you know, after right. he did it, he goes, "Hey, how do you? You know, I I don't like having time in between acting." And he actually is yeah. really really good. But he loves comedy. Yeah. I mean, it is a yeah. different, I guess. Yeah, and he comes um, from a comedy background. He's not like I mean, everything he was in was was, was comedic, comedy and they're related. writing comedy. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie has the best theory about how, why comedy is the hardest and and acting. He, she, you know, she said kids and animals can act. You know, it's it, it's little, true. You know, it's just I've I mean, seen a pretty get, funny monkey. You know, you I mean, obviously you get actors like you know, the, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman or right. You know, I mean, that's a whole nother level. But that other bullshit. Come right. On. But we had, like, to me, one of the best fucking performers of all time was little Michael Jackson. When he was, like, 11, 12 years old, he was as good as anybody, in my opinion. You're never going to find a comedian at 11, 12 years old right. who would go, holy shit, that guy's better, as good as prior, you know? Right. Yeah. But little Michael Jackson was as good as James Brown. I don't give a shit what anybody says. I've never heard yeah. of this guy. Who is he? Oh, he, well, he went uh, on later... Uh, to, to, right. to when you used out. to watch him yeah. on, on TV and, and you go, this kid is has more talent <laughs> right. than anybody I know or I'll ever have in my life. Just his dancing, not even right. his singing. Just his dancing as a young kid. But you won't find that in a little kid. There's no such thing as a little kid. Well, because you have to create it completely 100%. Out right. Of, you know, everything you're doing up there, you're creating you know, it's the strange. It is the strangest art form, I think that we have. There's nothing weirder than going up, and I'm going to talk for 45 minutes while you listen. Imagine having someone in the room do that to you. Well, it's it's interesting that it gets so little respect. Comedy gets yeah. that when you know people are spending you know millions and millions of dollars to make a movie to keep people in one place for an hour and a half. Right. And you know, I've seen Rich do two hours kill. You know, he's yeah. doing what they're you know. Or, yeah. But his jeans do cost a lot of money. You're looking at, you know, $100 million to keep, and all these different people working together to do it. Or Springsteen, who is using songs yeah. that have been embedded yeah. over and over and yeah. over. So when, when the song gets played, you're thinking about an old girlfriend or your high school friends. Yeah. There's nothing in comedy like that. It's only yeah. about this moment. Yeah. Right? You know? And that's true, too. you got to keep writing. You get It's so hard. I mean... If you might, you'll repeat some stuff from last year or the year before, but someone will go, I heard that. I, and yeah, really? Well, when you go see Springsteen, does he do a whole new set every time you see him? You know, yeah. I'm not, I'm not Louis C.K. I can't write an hour in a week. I know, but, but I think people, when they're with their friends and they're funny, yeah. they think this translates, right. this would translate on the stage, and they don't get that. Like, it's so hard to, if you, people don't know who you are, especially to just start. This is my sense of humor. These are without knowing anything about me, you know, I've got yeah. to try to like bring you along on this trip. Yeah, there are so many like clueless natures about that too cuz some people won't even be funny to their friends and family and they'll go up 
at a club and, and do stand-up, die, and then come over to you and go, well, what do you think? Yeah. And they will honestly think, you know. I might be one of well, those I people. Say, <laughs> I say, like, the new, new comics have to bring friends. You right. Know? And I go, you know, it's tough enough being a new comic. Now you got to bring friends. I go, what's even tougher is being one of those friends driving home with them going, no, you did well. Right. No, you know, if uh, you have a friend in the city who's starting stand up yeah. now, they asked you to go to shows all the time. Yeah. And you have to say to them, no, no. Right. You know what I mean? I'm, this is not worth it. It's like asking me to go to your aunt's funeral. Yeah. It's terrible. <laughs> it's well, awful. They should have, and I was talking to another comic about this. They should have, like they have scared straight. Mm-hmm. They should have it for new comics. Like, look at me. I'm 55. Look, is this what you want? Right. A failed marriage, <laughs> a marriage where uh, the only time you relate is when you're writing each other jokes. Is that what you want? You know, yeah. uh, normally can I didn't calling. know that was our yeah, relationship. It was just a joke. You know that. Uh, hold on. DeRosa's calling me. Uh, oh, so, that was DeRosa. <laughs> oh, is he really? Like, yeah. he's not. He's a drama queen. He's yeah. going to, like. He, uh, he's sensitive. He's probably he's very sensitive. 15 other people to get their take on it before yeah. he called you. Uh, it's just comedy. I love, but here's the thing. And with her, Dross is in the movie, by the way. Yeah. Very he's funny. Great. He's great. Do you have time to cut him? <laughs> I oh. told him. I told him that we cut him out. Here's, here's, with all the bullshit in comedy, and her, I know. I love. We love doing stand up. I love it. I'll do it anywhere, anytime. You know, pretty mm-hmm. much in a club. I love doing. We did shows this week. We went with Colin to some place. A cool place, the Creek and Cave in Long Island City. A little, mm-hmm. and we did a show called Crowd Work, and it was me, Colin, and, and it was so much fun. Okay, last night a little club. So I love doing stand up, whether it be twenty people or, or five thousand. You know, but you deal with all the bullshit. But when you're up there doing it, right? You that point, you love it. That you love, you just love doing it. It's right. just, it's in your blood. You know, to do stand-up. That's what the fuck I... But you can also never finish it. That's why you just keep doing it. Because you can yeah, never... Yeah, so never get really perfect. Yeah, you yeah. never get it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Because, I, I like, my last CD was pretty good. It was go, great. I, I go, I I hate what I do. I, I get a dollar every time I, I say that. I got to <laughs> reinvent. You go, why am I doing this? Why am I not doing something that has more meaning, you know? Right. Uh, just, You're never going to get there. Bunny's right. You will never get there. You'll you'll just eventually die. But maybe that is maybe that's <laughs> the matter the for next four years. Maybe that's the metaphor <laughs> for life. Maybe like you you never get to be a really good person or as good as you could be. You're never as good as a parent or a, as a son or whatever. You just never get it. You're never good enough at anything. Maybe that's the metaphor. <laughs> that's what we should all this, go to bed tonight thinking about. You'll never be good enough. <laughs> yeah, this is the most depressing movie. Uh, women aren't funny. Who, whose idea was it to come up with this? Which one of you? Well, this was all you? yeah, I mean, I uh, I had the idea to, to do this movie and then I sort of, you know, pitched it to Richard. I remember totally in the, like, hotel room and... Um, he immediately was like, yes, great idea. Let's mm-hmm. do it. How do I fit in? You know, then it was all about how. And he was like, how am I? He kept going, how am I going to be in the movie? I don't understand. What's my part in the movie? And I was like, <laughs> that. That is exactly <laughs> what you're going to do. And it is. It's really him, you know, trying to get in the movie. You know, the, the funny thing, we we're talking about DeRosa today, who I do think is a really sensitive guy. And mo- that every comic is, don't you think? Somewhat sensitive. Right. Oh, somewhat yeah. needy, somewhat insecure. Yeah, just want that over and over again. Where how do you think that plays into the 
art form of it all. Why? Why well, is that? Well, because here's if it's it's you're trying to get validation from complete strangers that you didn't get somehow growing up. That's what a lot of comics I think you were invalidated. You know. Probably as a child, and as a child, you can't handle that. But as an adult, you should be able to handle it. Right. But your inner child is making you. Oh, I'm telling you, read any Bradshaw book. But see, maybe this is what you, you were saying, how you get done as a comic. The day that you go, I don't need to walk out and get 20 people yeah. to be fucking happy. But it, but I think it's, it's you know, that sort of <laughs> like reduces it to something that it's not really no. like. Well, it's creating too. It's yeah, it's being created. It's a very right. like, but it's a specific it's, type of creation. That's the weird thing about it. I want you to make funny noises at things that I said. It's really bizarre if you like had an alien came here and look at even laughter itself, and then some people are good at making laughter happen. It's really strange. Well, because if you look at really good comics, they're not even making jokes. They're just telling the truth, right. and everyone's right. laughing yeah. at it. And sometimes the truth is really horrible when you break it down, and people yeah. are just sitting there laughing. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, and this sounds crazy, and it's... it's uh, Narcissist, but when oh. we uh, this morning on ONA, mm-hmm. Roger Moore was in, and every time I made him laugh, like I'm thinking to myself, I just made Roger Moore laugh, right? And it, that's the only thing that made me feel I'm going, I made Roger Moore laugh, and I'm thinking, well, who the fuck is he? Yes, why Roger Moore? <laughs> yeah, like, what kind of connoisseur yeah, is he? Yeah, like, He's know, been in movies, yeah. But I, if I, you were a chef, you would want someone to like your food, you're right, yeah. But you would right. Like, but why would you, why would you not want? Frank the plumber you like it as do. much as you, you want Roger you Moore love to like getting, it. making Frank the plumber laugh just as much I'm sure uh, when Roger Moore was laughing I thought I because he's a knight <laughs> Sir, Sir Roger Moore <laughs> you know he, Rich asked him how he gets sir because how do you get sir <laughs> I didn't say that <laughs> yes, <he> did. <laughs> And he laughed and laughed. Oh, great joke, son. (laughs) Great joke. I must take this back. I love your character. (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's Caroline's this weekend. And I told you this before, but I'm really proud of you guys for going out and doing something outside of the stand-up and creating something that actually will have a life out there. And I know that there's interest in it, and I hope you guys pick the right kind of distributor for it because... uh, I think it deserves to be seen. Everybody can come to this at Caroline's, right? It's yes. open to everybody. It's it is there is a it is fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars, which is to me a steal. And you guys are going to be there, right? Well, the, yeah, Colin is uh, going to introduce the movie. He's probably going to do a couple of jokes, and then afterwards we have a little bit of a panel with yeah. Susie Essman and some other people. Yeah, um, great. One o'clock. I hope Colin doesn't say it's stupid. That's no, what I would yeah. I would be concerned about. He well, says it in the movie. Here's the thing, too. Here's the thing. If you can't make the movie tomorrow, uh, next week in Poughkeepsie, I'll be at Bananas, and you can come ask me about how the movie went. Okay, good. I just want them to know, because I'll <laughs> right. tell them that it went well. So you can you can get this in the Hinderlands as well. You yeah. guys get some Thanks. sleep for tomorrow. You I want you to be nice us. and fresh for this, and you're doing as much stuff as you can, and I'll see you guys. Thanks Thank you very much. Us. Thanks. Bye-bye.
right. I like Voss and Bonnie so much. They're awesome. Uh, they have been here all day long today, but they really do need to plug this movie out. That's uh, um, screening is uh, happening tomorrow. Women aren't funny. Uh, One p.m. at Caroline's. Uh, Colin Quinn's going to be there. Uh, the Twitter for first responders at Rich Foss at Bonnie McFarland. Um, very very nice people. Very very nice people. Glad that they got this done. Uh, Hicks, we've got some of those other doc people coming in today, right? Yeah, we have more doc people. We have the director of the Jason Becker documentary. Oh, yeah. And looks like Andy Summers from The Police. All right. Uh, the Police, I did see that documentary, and it's called uh, I Can't Stand Losing You. Yeah. The weird thing about that is he shot so much stuff of The Police um, the whole time. He was a photographer. So you get all these kind of weird rock star things. But what you forget is how fucking big the police were, and then they broke up. They broke up at the absolute peak. They were the biggest band in the world. Every country just they just blew the fuck up if they went there, right? I mean they, they were yeah, they were a worldwide band. Well, first of all, it was you got great musicians and then there's real pop music. So it was accept, accessible to people who aren't exactly like music connoisseurs. But you have this fucking fantastic drummer. He's unbelievable. And then Andy Summers is like a great guitar player. The Stones were looking. Um, he was one of the names that the, the, when, when they picked up Ronnie Wood. It was like him, Jeff Beck, Peter Frampton. And there was one more. I can't remember who it was, but just maybe Rory Gallagher. I can't remember right now, but just fucking great guitar players. Shit. So Andy Summers uh, will be uh, on by the end of the show today. And uh, this Jason Becker story, which what what time is he coming in? Uh, one p.m. Um, that story is just a heartbreak, man. And I shouldn't just leave it a heartbreak because it's also it's like a great story that makes you feel better about being a being a human. You won't sit around crying like Barack Obama for winning. He should be fucking partying, like he should be. Not just getting emotional. He here. should be guying it up a little bit. Like he's got his four more years. He's got it. He's a lock. Nothing's gonna happen. He's exhausted. I mean, for the past two years, he's the, had to campaign plus try to run the country I in like, this mess. I'm so proud of you for using the word "try." That's a really good one. <laughs> he run, he can run a campaign, but then he tries to run the country. Um, the weirdness on this, though, is. Why not go take a... I, I would feel better if he did go rest. Go cry with your wife. Um, Look at Obama taking a vacation days after he won the election. Good, I would do it. Because you don't have to run again. What Let dick. everybody bitch. That was the point of, of Voss and Bonnie. You can't please people. You <laughs> cannot please them. There's always going to be a fucking large contingent who's going to just want to shit on you no matter what you do. It's just part of it. I love the fact where people be like um, thinking it's funny because someone else is old. Like, or this is, kills me. Is he still culturally relevant? You know what I mean? Like, well, who is? Is Lady Gaga because she's big right now? Mm -mm. Like, would would people sit around and laugh or or like uh, act like, let's say Bob Dylan is old? Yeah, he's old and he's done fifty years of fucking phenomenal work. Where's 
what's your point on this? Yeah, but it doesn't sound the same. Or, like it's on the record. Or Ozzy Osbourne is not 25 anymore. I don't get your point. I what's don't get it. What's wrong with him? He shakes a lot. Yeah. Give me a fucking He's break. fucking shaking after fucking shaking the world. That's why he's shaking. For 50 fucking years. Suck it. From the bay to the beaches, motherfucker. He rules the pools. <laughs> Sabbath, baby. Come on. <laughs> 95 YNF. Um, we didn't get a bu- to a bunch of stories yet today. Oh, by the way, go to the Filtered Excellence. Uh, great stuff on there. Lincoln, the polo, talked about this must be the place, the standbys. There's also a piece, Apollo, up that you would like black and white contemporary films. All right. Now, I love a film in black and white. Do you or you oh, don't absolutely? Like it? There's a whole different feel to it, and and when they make that decision, it be it, it's a very specific decision that they're trying to uh, message they're trying to put across. Um. All right, I gotta just check to make sure that we have these up or not. I'm not sure. Would you check for me? Uh, yeah, I'm Chris? looking at it right now. All right, so we do have it up. Contemporary black and white. Lock okay. Weekend, baby. All right, so let's go over that a little bit uh, because it's one thing to say, "Oh yeah, Casablanca looks great," but they didn't have a choice. But to me, the most beautiful black and white film of all time, Manhattan. Right. Love looking at it. Love the beginning of it, and I do. I wish I had black and white glasses that I could put on sometimes when I walk around Manhattan. If you Instagram things, you could turn anything black and white. But they always did have the choice because, I mean, Gone with the Wind was in beautiful uh, Technicolor in 39. All right, good point. And Wizard of Oz, and they made the choice to go both ways, black and white and color, the Wizard of Oz. And, they, and actually, they got the great and powerful Oz. They're doing the same thing that's coming out. Um. They're going to do that in black and white, or do no, it the same way? Assume the same way, a little bit of the both. That's weird. It isn't weird, because they're just trying to say, we're just like... Uh, we love the first film. Yeah. All right, but they're using Oz. All right, Psycho, black and white. Beautiful film. I just saw the Hitchcock uh, movie with Anthony Hopkins, too, uh, where he uh, where it's about the making of Psycho. A great choice for that film. Um, And it was the same exact way that they tried to... They said we'd rather do it in black and white? Well, he was coming off of North by Northwest, a big color movie, a very big, happy, successful movie. And he was constantly being hit that he's over the hill, you know, that, and, and he was going to show that he was going to go completely in the other direction, make a stark, down and dirty film. And he, mm. and he obviously proved it. I mean, all-time classic. All right, what's the next one, uh, Chris? That next one is Dr. Strangelove. Love it. Love it. And, of course, Kubrick's, some of his best movies are in black and white. Lolita, Paths of Glory. I mean, there's just, you know, he was a, a one who understood that medium. And, of course, he had many great color films as well. Um, that, to me, is, now I changed my mind, that might be my favorite black and white film. I never turn that one off. Never turn off Strange Love. No, Strange Love is my favorite Kubrick film. Is it? It is. I think it's probably mine, too. Although, and this didn't make it, it's also one of my favorite black and white films, the one he did right after that, Lolita. Right. I think it was gorgeous, scary, weird... But the great thing, Funny. About, yeah. But the great thing about Strange Love, it's not coming from a class, one of the all-time great books of all time, where you have to treat it with reverence. This is a thing that came together from so many crazy things, and it could have been a disaster. 
Terry Southern, my friend, writer right. on that. Right, right. The great Terry Southern, which I wish people would give more love to. Uh, all right, what do you got next? The Last Picture Show, 70. Actually, gorgeous film. Actually, one of the very best black and white films because the look shows how powerful black and white can be. I mean, if that film was in color, it would not be the same film. I agree with you. I will agree with you 100%. Um, what's the next one? Young Frankenstein, 74. Again, here's a comedy, and you could watch that film with the sound down because you got great faces in it, and the black and white is stunning in that film. But there, if you had that film on with the sound down, you're like, well, this is something re- you can almost understand the whole film. Too. Right. You don't even need the jokes to get the comedy. The classic uh, films of, of those eras, the Frankenstein and the, and the Dracula, you can't even imagine them in color at this point. Um, that's a good point. All right, what do you got next? Manhattan, 79. I don't, I don't agree with this. That did not belong there. I wish it was in color so that you could see the fireworks go off. <laughs> the fireworks in black and white is one of my favorite things I've ever seen right. in my life. Right, and um, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, because he respects all of the of those films that came out. Here's that the time. weird thing, though: how come so many of these are comedies? How come, like, there's something about comedy and black and white? Well, uh, you know, Woody Allen respects the black and white films, and and and, and Brooks as well. Al- Mel Brooks did as well. So maybe today, a what lot were of- the best black and white films that uh, Woody Allen did? Well, he had the one afterwards that uh, that nobody really liked. Zelig? Well, he did Zelig, but the one right after uh, Manhattan, uh, I, I'm trying to remember. Oh, that was with the three women, and it was the... Well, no, the the one where he was, like, bitching about his life. and. Oh, that's one of my favorites of all time. That's called... Um... What the hell is the name yeah, of that film? Why is that left me? He made so this? many freaking yeah. movies. It's, it's crazy. About 1979. Stardust. Stardust Memories. Yeah. I love that film. I it's actually too. one of my favorite films of all time. And people got mad because he made fun of critics. He made fun of the audience. Right. And they went, wait, we're not a bunch of fucking weirdos. Yeah, you are too, dude. That's funny. <laughs> we're all fucking weirdos. Yeah. Though. And that's the point. He actually went out of his way. It's what's so funny was to like he's doing like a talk in the thing about film. But everybody who came up to him was like Paulo. So they would come up and they'd try to hand him a salami and say something weird. And it's like one of my favorite New York films. Could you <laughs> And everybody got so mad at it. Could you imagine me coming up to Woody Allen? Oh Woody and I would lift I would yeah, bear hug yeah. him, lift him off the ground. You and don't you beautiful. think he's had to put up with that a million times? Um here's Steve. Steve you're on the run of Fez show. What about uh, The Hustler, Paul Newman and Jackie Gleason? Love that film. Fantastic. Beautiful black and Robert white Robert Rosen, film. I love that film. And uh, Gleason is a fucking genius. Mm-hmm. Genius. Maybe steals the film. Maybe steals yeah. it from Paul Newman. Um, Larry, you're on running Fez. Yeah, how about uh, 12 Angry Men? One set, all stars, the, the difference between black why prejudice old young it was a great movie Sidney Lumet did so many great black and white films he was terrific yeah that film too um i think has been put like remade in different languages uh, i think there's a russian version of it of course they keep doing newer versions and instead of it being black and white it's like puerto rican or 
or whatever is the latest thing mm-hmm. to be prejudiced about. It's a terrific film. Did not make the list, though, Polo. I understand that. Did not make the list. There's a lot of great black and white films. But some people are prejudiced. A lot of people are prejudiced against... uh, They won't go to it. They They won't won't go to a black and white film. I literally had to fight in my ex's house. You're showing me a black and white film? What are you crazy? I'm trying to think. I've known a couple people. uh, Al Dukes was like this and Mark Zito that were like... I can't watch black and white films. Oh, like yeah. they can't watch like a James Cagney film. They can't watch a Bogart film. They're like it just seems it's a, so. It's old. the same thing with Crazy. subtitles. Some people, I'm not going to watch a subtitle movie. What do you? What for? In a subtitle movie, for me, the thing of even being conscious of of reading is maybe the first minute, and then after that, you don't even think about it. Right. Um, it's about being open, having an open mind. Uh, here is Rich. Rich on the Run of Fez show. Yeah, the, the Apartment. Great black and white movie. I agree a hundred percent. And of course, Sunset one. Boulevard and all of his other films were fantastic as well. Also, a beautiful film to look at, yeah. and it's in black and white. Mm-hmm. No Billy Wilder on here, huh, Paul? Uh, huh? No. This nope. is fucking crazy. Because there are too many to choose from. There are too many to choose from, that's right, but still. And we want to go with the more modern ones as well. If you go over to the iBang, it's listed and put that down because, uh, you know, maybe we'll make even a longer list someday. Was the man who, well, I could make a hundred uh, film yeah. list if you'd like. <laughs> the man who wasn't there is not on that Beautiful list. film to look at. Yeah. Beautiful film to look at. One of my favorites is Paper Moon. Oh. Paper Moon Again, is actually stunning. Last picture show, Bogdanovich. I wish someone would just produce him the fuck out of him. What happened there? I I don't know, but if I got a hold, if I had any power, I would get that man and a few other real Hollywood people and make some real classic movies. You know, I was at the theater one time and I took a piss next to Bogdanovich. <laughs> that we both got up and took a piss at the same time, and I was actually thinking to myself. My penis is next to a genius's penis. <laughs> you want to fight? Sword. And then his penis has also been in Star 80. So, <laughs> And Sybil Shepard. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, was anyone prettier than her in Last Picture Show? No, gorgeous. I mean, she didn't even look like a human being. She had, like, alien doll eyes. It's like you would do anything for her. She told you to, you know... Take a shit on a, on a table. You would. I just don't understand why you would go there. I, I don't think she would say it. So now I want you to take a shit on a table. There's no reason to even bring that up. So pretty, please. Um, Mark, you're on the Run and Fetish show. Hey, Ron, how you doing? You know, it wasn't until the mid '60s when color TV started to appear on the horizon that Hollywood really made a presumption in favor of color film. But the one that I think has been omitted from your list is Raging Bull. I mean, Marty Scorsese intentionally made that choice after well, making several great color films. He actually made the choice uh, for this reason. I know. He said he the blood uh, looks better as syrup than kind of fake movie blood. And he used chocolate syrup. And De Niro said it was probably the most delicious movie that he's ever been in. But isn't that weird that he would go, we can't get blood to look right. And then they went, all right, let's change the entire film. And it is fucking gorgeous. It's a gorgeous movie. I don't know why. A lot. Of, here's another one that they did a couple of years ago that I thought was so stunning. 
did well in the awards, but people don't show up for it. It was good night and good luck. Mm-hmm. That thing that was movie. a million times better than Mad Men, whatever people sit around jerking off to, but, thinking about that same era. But And then he, he, uh, Clooney also made The Good German, again in black and white with Soderbergh. And those when they're dealing with the post-war period, it really does bring it back. Does anyone do the movie star, filmmaker, actor thing better than Clooney? Clooney I mean, cares. Clooney cares. But at the same time, he knows how to be a movie star. Right. Right. He is smart. He's a smart guy. And I think he's considering the ER thing, you know, the old days where you couldn't come out of TV and, and be a star. Right. And Roseanne before that. That's right. And then Facts of Life, I think. He did yes. some really <laughs> weird fucking things. <laughs> and then ended up, And then, you know, he was in a shitty Batman movie. But if you look at him now, he's kind of like Paul Newman, Clark Gable, and then, but then also Redford as a filmmaker. You know, he's just yeah, he's a he's not fucking up much. He's a smart, classy guy. You're not going to give him any shit, but he's going to be gracious and nice to you if you're polite. That's the kind of guy you want, hmm. I guess. Um, Jason, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ron, if it's, uh, what about Schindler's List, even though they have the scene where the girl with the red dress? Yeah, I think that throws them out of this. They do not make it for having the red dress. Small I actually despise that scene. I was just like, yeah, we get it. Stop it. I Why know. not just put a little alien or a fucking dinosaur in there? <laughs> what do you got next? Clerks, 94. Now, Clerks is so interesting because I guess... At the time, it was cheaper for him to shoot in black and white. Is that why he did it? I think so, yeah, because he had to put all that in credit cards and shit. Like, he was trying but to cut it's, corners. it's a terrific black and white film. <laughs> it's awesome. Because it kind of reminds you of the mild depression of what it's like to be in that kind of dead-end job thing. I mean, it really has an indie roots with that, because that's how a lot of the crappy 16-millimeter films used to right. look. I think it works, too, because if you see any surveillance footage from a convenience store, it's going to be black and white. It gives it a convenience store look. I didn't even think of that. Did they ever try to do a convenience store shot? I don't know if there's yeah. a shot like that. I don't I think don't, so. I don't think it's supposed to be, you know, like found footage. He's just shooting it like a movie, whether they're in the convenience store or not. I don't know why it works as good as it does, but it's really fuck. It seems so much cooler than if he would have shot it in color. Um, and we were saying, for some reason, black and white uh, works really, really fucking good with comedy. Um, Mike, you're on Run of Fez. What's up, Ronnie? Yeah, I got a couple more recent directors. You got... Uh... Following by Christopher Nolan and Pi by Darren Aronofsky. Um, Pi reminds me of Clark's. Like I don't know whether he did that for financial reasons. Yeah, it was or... an early film, brilliant, really yeah. great. Because it's all about the Bible codes, which I'm fascinated. Well, by. it's also about math, right? And you know what I mean, all of that works together. The, the Jewish. Uh, this kind of Jewish secret society. Which has become that thing that Madonna's in now. You know what I mean? Like it was another version of that. What's it called? Kabbalah. Yeah. Right. But the Bible code is all about math and figuring out the secret messages that God sent us in there in that Bible. (laughs) Well, if there was any way to break anything down, um, it's going to be done with math. You know what I mean? It's going to be done with math. 
You should have seen his apartment in that movie. He had like it was nothing but it. wires. It I mean, you're saying you should have seen it. I did see it. Oh, I'm not some guy who doesn't see movies, Paulo. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm My a... life is a movie. We could go to the movies <laughs> this week. <laughs> well, you can go to the Doc Fest tonight if you want to. Absolutely. Um, some people invited us out to dinner and movies and then did the bait and switch on us. Did you notice that? Strange. Here's the great restaurant. Oh, no, I'm taking you to the Pasta Palace. <laughs> I like a good pasta. Well, good. You're going to the right place for it. Hicks, you're going to be happy, too, because they have a beer and wine bar. Not open cocktails like the other one. Pitches? Yeah. Wait. There's no hard liquor? <laughs> no. All you can drink, pitches? Say, you're like you're like Romney right now. You didn't. We got bait and switched. I feel like my dick's getting <laughs> fucked right now. But is that a good thing? Bad Saying. day, because it's not like I'm fucking something... They're taking something and putting it in the dick hole and fucking Oh, my God, dick. that's awful. Wow. Yeah, that's a bad dick fuck. That's awful. Sangria? I fuck sangria. <laughs> it's basically what they're trying to do. Bottle fucking Maker's Mark, baby. You know, that's my drink. Um, Drew wants to teach us something about uh, clerks. You understand the black and white choice? Well, yeah, from what I recall from Kevin Smith, I, I think that film, the film stock was actually given to him or left over, which is why he used it, you know, which is one of the reasons he could make the, the thing. It's, it's a really did. weird thing. If you went back to that, I wonder if it would have been such a, a quick hit if it was in color. I wonder if the black and white helped the underdog aspect of that. A comedy in black and white stood out, I right. think, right away. But you had this kid, and he really was a kid at the time, who didn't look or talk like Hollywood walking around with this black and white film, selling it, the black and white might be a giant reason why any of us even got a chance to see it, you know? I, I think it's a huge reason for its success. It's really, really interesting. All right. Um, why didn't you make Gap in black and white? It was... Uh, not Out of a, your hands? Yes. The next one that you, um, you're you shooting is called uh, Goots. No, we have uh, we have. A what lot are you doing with goods? We have a lot of independent projects going on, uh -huh. but we also <laughs> are the maker of gap. We also, uh, I'm also helping a new wingman. Helping? On How do you helping something? You're it's, a crazy it's fuck. The sequel Seriously, to, you're right on the edge right it's now. Dude. The sequel to you the got happening. Me so fucking nervous. What are you What are you texting around about during the show? This guest just signing downstairs. Bait and switches here. <laughs> <laughs> It switches here, maybe not bait. <laughs> All the sangria. Oh, really? Only one's coming in. No, wait. No, bait and both bait and switch. <laughs> well, do I got all the stuff on that? The Jason Becker film, Not Dead Yet. It's playing tonight at the IFC Center. Oh, that's a cool place. Yeah. In New York City, which the producers called Jew Pork City. Oh. But they don't want anybody to know about that. JasonBeckerMovie.com. If you are. A fan of metal. Um, this is the film for you. At uh, Jason Becker Film on Twitter. This it, it's an it's an amazing fucking film, really. Um, let's go over to Casey. Casey, you're on the run of fashion. Hey, yeah. Hey, Ron. What's going on? How are you? Good. There was a movie in the 80s, came out in 87, I think, uh, by Wynn Winters called Wings, Wings of Desire. Desire. Yeah. Did we already talk about that? No, but it's one of my favorite films of all time. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my too, my too, as well as my dad. We we love it. Um, I thought I'd bring it up. No, you are a, that that that's a great call. And beautiful. But now, look at Wim Wenders. He does a great black and white film, but his some of his color films are some of the most amazing cinematography you've ever seen. If you've ever seen Paris, Texas, he oh, just yeah. does unbelievable things with color and lights that nobody does. I agree with you, but you know, you have to be great at cinematography to pull off a great black and white film. Oh, it's not absolutely. like, oh, we get to throw that out the fucking window now. Absolutely. Are you saying Vim does it himself? The no, cinem- he has a great cinematographer who I don't know, but I, I, I Then think- how do you know he's great? <laughs> because they work together and they, you know, obviously yeah. hand in hand for many years. Black and white has its own challenges, no question, as far as... Mm-hmm. I wanted to mention to Fez, I thought that was a really interesting point you brought up about clerks. I never really thought of it that way, that it does have a convenience store camera feel. Well, as soon you as know, Fez that's... said that, I went and looked to say, hey, are those the angles? Maybe I haven't picked up on it. But they did not. I mean, no. I don't think he thought of it that way. But sure. now, in hindsight, you could definitely, you know, Fez is right. And think of that because we didn't have found footage movies in those days well, it wasn't I mean, the, the Blair, Blair Witch plot but that was after right and that's clearly a, a found footage movie in black and white and color but right but that was that the first found footage movie it, it's the one that it was the mark the 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 milestone so to speak in the found footage movies was it the first this is all I'm asking it's it's the first as far as anybody cares well, so what is the one we don't care about? We call Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. That's all I need. <laughs> That's all I fucking need. I don't. I'm not familiar with Cannibal. Yeah, What's it? There's other cannibal man bite dogs. There's a lot of them out. All right, so that's good. But it was the blockbuster. Okay. Of, you know. It, so that's all you care about—the Michael Bay of found footage. Exactly. That is all that cares. Um. Here is. Anthony, you're on the Run of Fez show. Anthony, we got you. Oh, hey, how are you? Good. Sorry, I didn't hear you hear my name. Uh, one quick thing. Well, I uh, said your Vin fucking Vendor's, name, Anthony. Uh, Don't act like I didn't. Tim <laughs> <laughs> Vendor's uh, cinematographer is Robbie Mueller. Um, All right, thanks Robbie for being the person that uh, Polo isn't. I appreciate that. But uh, I just wanted a great black and white film, great use of black and white, is Abel Ferrara's vampire film, The Addiction. Love The Addiction. Love Abel Ferrara. Um, It also has the person I think should have been the the girl De Niro in that film. Um, For me, Lily Taylor is one of my favorite actors. Absolutely. She's a very misused uh, actress. It's because they don't know how to use women properly in I, films. I just did a six feet under a marathon, and she was so great in that. Yeah. She's fantastic. great in everything. That's true. She's just fucking great. Her best performance, in my opinion, is Girl Town. I love that, oh. too. Yeah, all right. All right. Many times, one time I talked to her on the phone, but I've never got her to uh, come in. Do we need to break before I guess? We can, we can just come on in. You don't want to break and give us a chance to set it up properly and... All right, let's break. We got, uh, we got breaks. Let's break. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we should. If uh, Let's come up with a prize right now, too. We got something metalish. I'll grab something metalish. Well, give it to me while I sit here. Uh, it's at Jason Becker Film. This is a film I, I would love for people to see. It's terrific. It's out tonight in uh, the IFC Center in New York City. Uh, and then it's jasonbeckermovie.com. For additional screenings. This is about a young man who was a guitar god. Uh, got the opportunity to be 
David Lee Roth's guitar player at the exact time where David Lee Roth was uh, with Eddie Van Halen and then he was with Steve Vai. So the guy that he picked next was going to be considered one of the greatest. And it was this kid, Jason Becker, just as the time he gets this, the, they find out that he has Lou Gehrig's disease. And it is a, actually it's a crushing film and then it, it picks you up. It's really about, you know, what makes a human being and and how to live life itself. It's stunning. I, it's absolutely a, a phenomenal story. We got Metallica, some kind of monster, signed by the directors Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky. All right. So at Jason Becker film at Jason Becker film for first responders. Uh, we'll be right back. It's the Ron and Fez show. The Ron and Fez show. Ron and Fez. That is Jason Becker playing guitar with David Lee Roth. The movie Jason Becker, Not Dead Yet, is playing tonight at 10 o'clock at the IFC Center in New York City. Jesse Vial is here, who is the director of the film, as well as Dennis Joyce, who is one of the producers. First of all, Jesse, congratulations on the film. It's not a... This could have been the, the saddest, most depressing movie ever and yet with everything that's happened you kind of leave there and feel good about being a human being yeah well you know first thanks for having me on the show um uh, that's that's right i mean it's i think when people first hear about jason and they hear about a story they go man that's a that's a major bummer mm -hmm. you know this this kid gets this dream uh to, to be you know this rock star and then he gets one of the most devastating disease that a human being can get isn't that a major bummer? But when you hang out with him and his family, you don't feel that way. You know, you don't feel the sadness and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that and that's the kind of film that I wanted to make. I didn't want to make a film that was going to be sad and depressing. It was more about, you know, capturing their true energy and spirit, which is which is mainly inspirational. This kid, Jason Becker, he's this phenomenal guitar player. He gets his dream job of playing... Uh, guitar for David Lee Roth back in the 1980s. At the time, you could not be a more high-profile player because David Lee Roth went from Eddie Van Halen to Steve Vai. Oh, who's next? He's found another one. 
Jason Becker. So everybody is looking to this kid to compare him with Eddie Van Halen and Steve Vai. We don't even have that kind of thing going on. And the moment that he finds out about this, he also finds out he's got Lou Gehrig's disease. It's stunning when you think about it. That's right. His, his parents call it um, heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. So they got a dose of heaven and then a very big dose of hell. And they kept it secret from, from everyone. Uh, David Lee Roth had no idea about it. So Jason was recording the album and uh, no one knew. And he was losing the ability to play. It, it was, it was, he took a multiple takes. He used to nail everything in one take. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he couldn't really bring it. You know, he brought it in the end, but it, it took a lot, right? Much more. So he wasn't able to fully give it as much as he wanted to give it when he was recording with with uh, David Lee Roth. But I mean, for you know, and he was nineteen. He got this gig. I mean, nineteen years 19 old. Nineteen years old. He got this gig, and it's like you know, it's Ozzy. Ozzy only plays with the best guitar players. Yeah. And it was the same with Dave. You know, he only played with the best guitar players. So to be a nineteen-year-old kid from a small town, East Bay of, of you know San Francisco. And to get a gig like this, it was just a tremendous thing. Now, you're a young guy. How did you become familiar with this story? How did you find out about it? I've known about him for, for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a guitar player, and um, when I was a teenager, a guitar teacher of mine just gave me a bunch of stuff. He was really into neoclassical music at the time mm-hmm. and was trying to get me into it. Uh, and I didn't really take most of it, but I really fell in love with Jason's music and his story and just always thought it would just make a great film mm. and it was just something that uh, i've always wanted to do and it wasn't until about 15 years later that you know it finally started happening when you contacted the family is this the story that they were waiting to tell is this something that they wanted to do or did it take a little prodding it took a little prodding um not as much as some other some other things but mm-hmm. uh, with them it was they were they were a little bit hesitant at first because first of all they didn't know who I was. Um, they had somebody make a do- try to make a documentary in the past. It didn't work out, and they put a lot of hard work and effort into it. And you know when Jason commits to something, he wants to commit to it. He doesn't want to do anything half-assed. Right. Uh, so he just wanted to make sure that I was serious. That I was going to do a proper job. This was this this you know it wasn't going to make a crap film. It was going to get a large audience. And so um, I just put together a little teaser trailer based on uh, videos I, I took from his website. And he, he loved it and just gave me the gave me the go-ahead, and that was it. Yeah, you were kind of lucky that there was so much shot on him when he was a kid because he was like this prodigy kid. And, so, and of course, it was the 80s, so it was the beginning of everyone has a video camera, everybody's video and stuff. So stuff that never would have been seen, you know, uh, other than by the family, is now presented in this. That's right. It was um, it was just a gold mine getting that stuff. I mean, yeah. I, I basically told the family I want everything, no matter you know, uh, every image, every scrap of audio you have, um, you know, things of him as a baby on, on. Just give me everything, and I'll mm-hmm. go through it. So they had to dig through all their archives. I mean, they were digging up, digging around in the attic, getting stuff down, and I was uh, archiving everything and, and having a look at it. And it was just amazing to see that stuff. I I wanted more. Yeah. Uh, I mean. There was lots of stuff on 16 when he was a kid, 16-millimeter uh, film, uh, rather 8-millimeter, sorry. And then, yeah, later, like you said, VHS with the big VHS camera. But as soon as he got sick, uh, the, the cameras went away. Sure. So we were missing a lot of that 
that kind of footage. So I, I was really desperate for that kind of stuff. But we managed to get get around it. Well, it becomes this thing about Jason Becker, but at the same time, it becomes about family because these are the people that are going to be there when everybody else goes away. And we don't know why that is. We don't know what this blood connection is. But these people have now become almost like a single unit to to live life. And they do it without bitching or playing the hero role. It just becomes their life now. Yeah, I mean, they, they love their son. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and uh, in one of the interviews, it's not in the film, but one of the interviews, his, his mom said, you know, what are, what are we going to do? Just just let, you let him take Jason away to some hospice and, you know, bye. You know, now right. you're going to go die. I mean, so when they want their son to live... They're going to do whatever they can. And the thing is, though, is that he has to want to live, too. Right. You know, there's a lot of people in Jason's situation. They they choose not to not to carry on, and I respect that. But Jason wanted to carry on. And so, um, and he has a purpose. He makes music. He's still very active. That's the stunning part of this film, that even though he's making music so differently, the fact that he has the language of music makes life worth living, makes him a human being that has a reason to wake up the next day. Not everybody would have that. You know, I mean, there would be like, if most of us who have spent somewhat of a sedentary life and never had that kind of obsession and passion, we might think there's nothing left for me to do. He's got a chance to live an exciting, vibrant life because of his knowledge of music and his ability to create. And he and he just loves it, you know. Yeah. It's he he just loves doing it, and luckily he's able to continue doing it. It's a pain in the ass for him to do it, but he, you know, he does it painstakingly, you know, note by note, with his eyes communicating his through his father, whose father is, is a is a guitar player, but nowhere near as distinguished as Jason mm-hmm. and, and accomplished. So it's it's a very tough process. Well, explain the process to people about how he communicates now, because that was mind-blowing to me. Right. So, essentially, he was when he was really into the decline, he was losing all... And anyone knows anything about Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, it just, it's, a, it's a paralyzing condition, so it completely paralyzes you. And so he was losing function. He couldn't really speak. Uh, so his father, who's an artist, went out to his art studio, threw together something in about 15 minutes, and essentially what it is, it's, it's a board. It's broken into six squares, and within each square are four letters, and each letter is two eye movements. So the first eye movement takes you to the square, and the second le- uh, eye movement takes you to the letter in that square. So they construct sentences that way and words. And it's, it's painstaking, but it's, uh, they got it down. And, uh, I mean, like you said, you know... It's like they're one unit, and they really are, because Jason doesn't have a physical voice anymore. Mm-hmm. So his voice is the voice of his father, of his mother, of his uh, ex-fiancee, of uh, one of his ex-girlfriends. And the thing about this film, it's filled with his, <laughs> filled with his ex-girlfriends. That's what's a fantastic thing, is like have some kind of relationship with those exes. Because those are the people that... Even a little bit of love means they still love you. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the thing that's just mind-blowing about this to me is that that he achieved enough to keep him going through this hardship in his early early life you know he made the kind of bonds that you need when you need people and people just gravitate toward him you know it's they, they, he's they charismatic wanna, yeah they want to be around him and i mean he's never 
He he he, you know, he gets laid more than 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 most people, you know, because he's a rock star. It just goes to show you, you know, it just it you, still works. Yeah, it still works no matter what. And um, he's just people just love being around him, hanging out with Jason. We were in his hometown and uh, uh, at the premiere, fifteen hundred people jammed into a gigantic movie theater, and it was like. All his friends, all his family, they had to add more screenings because of all the people that just wanted to be out there and supporting him. It was just unbelievable, the outpouring of support that he has. Like, well, Dennis, you're a guitar guy, and there are some guys that are good about uh, playing guitar, and there's other guys who look like a guitar has grown out of the side of their body. It looks like they are one. And that's what this kid had. He had that same type of thing that you saw that for whatever reason his connection to that I instrument you you couldn't tell where he ended and the instrument began yeah it's it's funny how i as i like try to learn the instrument mm -hmm. you you hear people like eddie van halen go oh i mean i, I never took lessons and right I'm just sitting there going how could you never take lessons i did that whole teach myself thing for two years and i didn't even understand like the notes in a scale right let alone these guys just grabbing it and going doo -doo 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 -doo, when it's out of tune, when mm -hmm. everything is all messed up with it, but they can still make music. And Jason was like that. Pick up the guitar. His dad gives him a couple of chords and does Bob Dylan songs. And Jason goes, screw that. I'm going to get into Eric Clapton solos at 10 years of at age. At 10 years old, just I can't a kid. Even under, I can't even comprehend that. Right. You know, There is um, something of genius. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, were, you, were you aware of Jason's career when... Yeah, happening. I was a I was kind of a guitar nerd back in the uh, back in the eighties, the the shredder days. I would get those um, guitar player magazines, and he'd always be writing articles of this seventeen year old prodigy and Ingve Malmsteen. I, I just loved all those players with their fluorescent guitars and you know just skin tight pants and the I just loved everything about the you know the eighties um, mm -hmm. shredder days. So I followed Jason and Marty Friedman, who ended up playing with Megadeth. It was like those were my guys. Those were my bands that I loved. And they were to they grew up together or whatever too, right? Yeah, they started playing in um, like this shredder factory called Shrapnel Records. If anybody used to buy those magazines, the advertisements would be like page long advertisements of um, Marty Friedman alone, Jason Becker alone, Marty Friedman and Jason Becker. So you just knew that those were the guys to listen to. So you followed mm -hmm. them. And then I like a sports team. And so when um, Jason got the David Lee, uh, when Steve I left David Lee Roth, it was like, well, who's he going to get? You knew that David Lee Roth was going to get someone amazing. And when he picked out Jason, it was like, yeah, all right, cool. So who's Marty going to go with? And then when Megadeth picked out Marty Friedman, I was like, win-win situation right there. So there was a community, a subculture right. of guitar hero and guitar hero fans. And then like kids these days, we go to these screenings and people will come up to us and talk about how long it took them to, to learn Air by Jason Becker. You know, mm -hmm. like people spend years trying to perfect the arpeggios and just the craziness of like what Jason created when he was 17 years old. Yeah, so Jason was a guy that could go out and play concerts and all that, but he was also a guy who could show up at record places and actually sit down and teach. As a young, young man, you would just go and watch him if you were a, a guitar player yourself. And it's really serious business. I mean, you know, uh, when Pantera came out, Dimebag Daryl was sort of pointed at as like, this guy's amazing. But most rock fans think of them as like the boozing, druggy, right. you know, 
who gives a shit bands. But if you actually see a dime bag clinic, you realize that this guy is a a true yeah, he musician. He yeah, knows play. everything about theory. <laughs> he knows everything about the instrument. You could just throw a sheet in front of him and he'd he'd wail it, you know, and he'd destroy it. Which makes this uh film, Jason Becker, not dead yet, even more compelling is that you take somebody who is a genius and a physical genius as well as a mental genius, but then you take his physical capabilities away from him. You the beauty of tying that into Lou Gehrig is it literally is the what happened to Lou Gehrig, the person that mm-hmm. you named this, a physical uh, specimen that you take all that away from. But what you are left with is still pretty phenomenal. That's the part of the film that you are not ready for. I think when you when you walk in there, you you don't want to, you don't think to yourself we're ever going to feel good about this story, but. There's amazing stuff that happens. And I think one of the lessons there is you think that, okay, so it's got to be the saddest story ever. You're so accomplished at doing something physically, right. and it's taken away from you. Like, could you imagine a, a sadder story? It's almost like an athlete who can't play anymore. Yeah. What are you left with? But then what we're able to convey in the film is it's like it actually went away physically. It never went away emotionally. And the music is in his head. Yeah. He still can play. Yeah, that is know. the thing. Like, what is genius? We think, you know, when we sit around and talk about it, we're like, well, those fingers go off and work on their own, and, you know, no one could possibly think that. But to me, it's even more impressive that you're not playing an instrument but can think of notes. He actually has the music somewhere mm-hmm. that he's dictating to his father who's ever helping out. Yeah. I don't even understand it, man. I don't yeah. even get it. Yeah. It's so mind-blowing. And it's just great to see that like, there is a connection between you know, people. I, I'm more of a person who can appreciate it rather than a person that wants to do it. But, right. but just like looking, the thing that does connect these sort of guitar heroes or these great musicians in any instrument is, is like they all speak the same language to each other. Right. Understanding theory. Oh, you know, let's raise that an octave. Hey, let's do something. Let's invert the notes. Those types of things are just so boring to maybe a music fan, but to a musician, it's mm-hmm. like it's the it's the language they speak to each other. It's really awesome. And if he didn't have that language, who knows if he'd felt like go on living. You know what I mean? Maybe the give up would have been there. Unless he had that thing to keep expressing, you know? Yeah. God, it's a mindfuck. It is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable story. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's similar to, you know, look at Stephen Hawking, you know, he's, he's got right. Gehrig's disease. And his his genius is in, um, in, you know, science and astronomy. So, and he's, luckily, he's still able to do his work through, uh, through a communication uh, apparatus. I mean, Jason actually met him once and... Jason was speaking very, very fast in comparison to Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking would take a little, you know, a few yeah. minutes, punch in the numbers, you know, spit it back out, and it's just you just have to have a will to to continue going, and you have to want to do it. But at the end of the day, you have to have people that want to help you as well. And right. That's, that's part of what the film's about. Well, that's what I said. Like most of us have had that with the older person in our family like do you bring grandma home or whatever but when it's a kid those parents still have that same feeling you know what i mean you're still a, you're a, a, a attached to your adult 
child the same way you were attached to that baby. You know what I mean? You feel the same way. So to see what this family does because that's the cards that are out there is just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, he's 19. He's still a kid. Yeah. You know, he graduated high school six months early, started touring with his first band, Cacophony, and he, he, was, he was a baby. And he still, you know, he still is a kid at heart. And uh, he, he wasn't able to experience a lot of the things that adults ex- – he's experienced you know, a hell of a lot worse than most people ever have to do. But in terms of the, the things that kind of make you an adult, you know, mortgages or student loans or whatever else we deal with, he didn't have to deal with any of that stuff. So he's still kind of like a kid in a, in a way. Sure, I guess so. Yeah. And the same way that a lot of rock stars get left in that – kid thing you know a lot of rock stars that they bring through here there's people to say here's the elevator we can you know because they have genius in one place and then never have to go and learn what time and where to meet the uh where what gate to meet the plane at they just have somebody to take them around so we might have been exactly the same yeah in a sense people take care of him they make his meals they feed him they do everything so in a sense he's still living the rock star life you know i I had aerosmith (laughs) in here like last week and they were being taken to the bathroom and had their food brought to them It, it really probably would be the same uh the thing for you though jesse is that you found this film i think one of the things people are always looking at making a good documentary but you've got to find the story to tell and you were able to do that and then put together a terrific film. Because I didn't know all this backstory at all. And I went into it pretty um, just open to whatever the story was. So you don't you didn't need to be a big fan of a lot of this in the eighties. You didn't you don't need to be at that point to be able to appreciate this story. Yeah, I didn't I didn't make it for the fans. I mean mm-hmm. not to say that I'm not, you know, the, his fans are, are, are great and the best in the world. I, I mean, I wanted to make it for the average person. You know, it's a human story, and uh, it seems to be about rock and metal, but it, it isn't. And I, I really like, you know, films, especially documentary films, that, that can do that. So uh, it's a film for everyone, you know? It's about the human condition, and it's about the human experience and the family experience. It uh, plays tonight in New York City as part of DocFest, but check it out at. Uh, jasonbeckermovie.com and at jasonbeckerfilm Uh, thank you so much for coming in I'm going to explain when we get back how we can uh, give out a couple tickets to tonight if you're in the New York area give us a call at 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ if you'd like to see this terrific film and on Twitter it's at jasonbeckerfilm thank you so much thanks a lot I'll see you next time thank you
Uh, Jason Becker, not dead yet, is playing tonight uh, at 10 o'clock IFC Center in New York City. Here is the Twitter, uh, is at Jason Becker Film for first responders. Uh, at Jason Becker Film. And uh, what did you have, Hicks, for uh, a prize on that? Metallica, some kind of monster signed by the directors. Some kind of monster. As kids fucking, um, they were just telling me eight different awards that they've won, special uh, jury uh, prizes and stuff like that. Uh, all kinds of heat coming into this film. And it's really, really fucking terrific. It's really great. Dennis Joyce, I first met. Uh, with the Plimpton film, he was a producer on that. All this stuff that is getting the kind of heat that I was hoping Gap would have gotten so long ago. Well, you know, it, can you imagine what it would have been like if uh, Beethoven had been uh, been filmed when he was going deaf and he created the Ninth Symphony? He was totally deaf when he did the Ninth Symphony, and that that's an amazing feat. When when you because the the the, the thing is they hear the music i just saw paulie shorewave uh they hear <laughs> the music somewhere differently exactly you know what i mean like and that's the weird thing about genius is like where do the are they inventing that does it seem like it comes in somehow it's the thing that i always have the biggest problem of atheism is like well then how do you explain creativity you know how many creative interesting people are out there and the weird thing is how many Imagine how many people get Lou Gehrig's at five and they don't have the chance to become Jason Becker or uh, Beethoven. Right. The complexity of Stephen life Hawking. is beyond explanation how these guys can function on different levels than we can't even imagine. They're completely right. incapacitated, yet somehow they're so much above us in other areas. But how many times do you look at an autistic kid... And, like, you'll judge them on some level, but they might be thinking at a phenomenal genius level. Like, they showed some of these autistic kids that could look at a landscape once and then draw it from memory. Draw it right. where it looks like a picture got taken. I would love to be a rain man and live in Vegas. I don't know if you would, though. I don't know if you would want that if you also couldn't get in touch with the other emotions there is to feel. You know? I want the full range, baby. I remember when we were sure Fez was autistic, and now I don't know. Now I don't know what the hell he is. Uh, Matt, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hey, Ronnie. Yeah. How's it going, brother? Hey, I just wanted to wish you a happy Carl Sagan day and was curious if maybe we could get a little uh, glorious dawn going into a break. Uh, which one do you want to hear? A glorious dawn. Mm, okay, that's that... Um, the Carl Sagan, uh, the guy in the wheelchair, rap yeah. punk there. <laughs> uh, why is it Carl Sagan Day? Um, I don't know. It's National Carl Sagan Day. I'm not sure exactly why they chose the date, but it's the day before my birthday, so I'll take it. Billions and billions. <laughs> That's all I know, Carl Sagan. Everybody loves Carl Sagan. Yeah, uh, they can't get enough of the guy. All stuff on YouTube, gigantic. People just watch it over and over again. And then we were empty without that role until uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson has firmly taken that spot. Yeah, but he doesn't have the charm of uh, Carl Sagan. Oh. Well, or the nice hair. We, you know, but there is something very, very likable about him. And uh, we've got a piece up now where he was doing the educational level of people that um, have, whether or not 
they're educated or not and how they vote it. Fezzi, where have you been? Um, I was checking on another guest. How's everything going? Uh, probably a couple minutes away. No, no bigs. Um, and this is who that wants to stop by? Kevin Pollack. Oh. Now, why didn't we do the Unmasked with Kevin Pollack? There was a hu- huge scheduling issues. You realize this is the second time? Yeah, I understand that. Who do we need to talk to? You know what? Can I just tell you something, Fez? And I'm going to give you the biggest advice ever. Get out of that email and just fucking talk to people. On the celly. Hit him up on the celly. Is that right? So you're giving that advice after you left Holly outside and then she felt like a lunatic stopping me as I was coming into the door? It was a miscue on my part. She was actually grabbing for me and running away at the same time. No. You know, texting is a dangerous thing when you're driving down the road, and it doesn't help your life in general. you got to talk I'm going to give you something else, and no one ever brings this up, because they're always about texting and drinking and driving. Yeah. But I was just finding out two weekends ago that you don't want to soak an e-thrag and keep it over your face when you're driving, because I was doing that. Really? And I fucking passed out twice. And I thought I was awake. I'm like, I'm driving. I'm driving. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait. I'm not driving. I've run over a fucking baby deer. Oh, God. And it looked like... And it's that kind of common sense that we got to get back to. Did, do you feel that you want to jump in and stop before the punchline hits? That's your thing? You're like, hey, he's built. He's built. Look, he's going to fucking drop the hammer. <laughs> that was a good one. Right yeah. There. And then, no. And then he, he, he stops me. You know, I don't care if you suck and fuck Fez. It doesn't give you the right to come in here. Now where are you going, Fez? Uh, Kevin just texted me that he's here. Yeah, go, go go grab him then. I can't believe these two. What are was the five today, too? The five. I can't keep up with everybody. It's going fast. I don't know whether the five's even up or what we're doing. I was. Um, it's commercials that make you cry. Well, I can't be part of that. That. Why didn't Fez set that up with the Obama thing? That's strange. I can't believe it. Because that Obama crying thing, I ain't seen that. It's uh, that's re- really freaked out. You think he made himself cry? Or that's actual real emotion? Because what would he gain from crying? I think it's real emotion. I think it's being exhausted. And I think oh, because man. he cried once, then you will cry all the time. Crying is like a concussion. <laughs> you don't want to give in to one. He's tear prone. Yeah. It's a release. It's like an orgasm in a way. All right, but you don't jizz in front of your co-workers. <laughs> well, maybe it's Paul, the precedent. you don't. Why are you jizzing, Paul? Paul. Yes? You don't jizz in front of us, do you? I don't. You're serious no, XM now. If, it was, if there was a couple of... Uh, First responders, it's at Jason Becker film. At Jason Becker film... Um, Get a copy of Metallica, Some Kind of Monster, signed by the directors. It's one of the great rock docs. Yeah, Speaking sure of is. emotional breakdowns, Jesus Christ, those guys. The weirdest thing about that is I kind of forgot that they were Metallica until the last scene. <laughs> when they came back out. Just yeah, they came out it. and there was 80,000 people losing their shit for what <laughs> up to that point had been like four whining, bitching guys. Well, actually three. That one, the guitar players. You should happy to be there. He's very cool with everything. <laughs> I'm a Metallica. This is great. Why aren't you go? Why are you guys so angry? 
Fucking Lars with his crazy art collection. That fucking worked. Yeah. That worked. Anyway, to pick that up, it's at Jason Becker Film. At Jason Becker Film. Also, Rich Voss. Blah, blah, blah. Caroline's tomorrow, 1 p.m. They didn't even know about the doc thing. It's weird. Yeah, they're part of the comedy festival. Yeah. Comedy festival is so weird because a lot of it seems to be the same things that are happening everywhere anyway. But they just call all right, now it's a festival for yeah. this month. Like you're part of the festival if you're headlining a club, but somebody was gonna be headlining that club anyway. I hear festival, I think I'm selling nitrous at this thing, but is that all you that comes back to you is nitrous? Hey, I had a great ether rag joke until fucking Paul dove on it. Uh, you must have had multiple punchlines. I thought I had a punchline. I build. Your punchline is <laughs> your punchline was what? Oh, fuck like, what it was. No, here's what it was. Word, 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 word. Because you feel this need to constantly talk. <laughs> His punchline was like just in front of my coworkers or some shit. Don't make that your punchline, Paul. Because we're in a place of fucking business. I'm what sorry. champion shirt are you wearing? It's the Tampa Bay. <laughs> Tampa Bay Rays uh, East Division champion. Right. Who is proud of being the East Division champion? It's a nice gray shirt. All right, Kevin Pollock's here. Let's bring Kevin in. Um, is the book he's pushing? Yeah, it's the book, yeah. Uh, How I Slept My Way to the Middle is uh, Kevin Pollock. I thought you were telling me to bring him in. Here he comes. Hey, buddy, what's happening? Hey, hey. Good to see you. How are you? Good, man. Good to see you. I believe you know John Lithgow, the actor, sitting in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Not too creepy. There you go. Have a seat, dude. I was just telling the audience, I don't know why we fuck up every time with you and Unmasked, but it's gotten to be a nightmare. I so much want to sit down and do the hour with you. Uh, I sense an that. Audience. I believe that. And yet, I don't know what it is between... I think it's my people and your people. Between the two, yeah. uh, nobody can get their shit together. They yeah. can't get their shit together. Yeah. And you got this book out, How I Slept My Way to the, to the Middle, and this is a ton of your experiences over the years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my stand-up back started out 100 years ago just doing impersonations. Right. And then... I got into movies somehow, and, um, well, I mean, I went on hundreds and hundreds of auditions where after a while it felt like they said, how about anyone but you was going to get this? <laughs> and then eventually you get lucky and you get something. So I started meeting and working with the people I've been mocking. Right. Which was not the plan, by the way. <laughs> and people don't like that generally, or they do like it? They they pretend that they like it. <laughs> I sense often that they don't, in fact, right. like it. Um but there's been some great moments because of this nonsense. So somebody's a literary agent saw the act, which has become a series of anecdotes mm -hmm. about meeting these people and mocking them. Uh, you know, doing Johnny Carson 100 years ago and doing Peter Falk on the show, mm -hmm. Johnny loving it, and then running into Peter Falk at a grocery store in L.A. and him accosting me in the produce section and saying, how do you do that with your eye? <laughs> you make just one eye move. How is that? Me, I understand, but how do you do that? By the way, uh, for the listeners, of course, I was just doing the one eye, perfect. which is tremendous it radio. Was, yeah, it was really, really done well. Thank you. Uh, so 
the literary agent saw the act and said, you, you should write a book. These are, these are great stories for a book. And I said, you should stop talking because <laughs> I don't have time to write a book. And then the process, which I am telling everyone, whether the publisher wants me to or not, because I highly recommend this, uh, truly. When I said I don't have time to write a book, he said, well, we have a guy, a writer. And I said, no, no, I can't have someone else write the book either. Mm -hmm. He said, no, he's a journalist. He's in Chicago. You'll do a series of Skype sessions with him. He'll research the hell out of your filmography and your stand-up career and your life, and he'll interview you to within an inch of your life. And you'll tell your stories. He'll record the Skype sessions, send you the transcripts, and you edit your own told stories. Wow. So it's kind of a fantasy because for a stand-up for 30 years, the spoken, told version of these stories is always going to be the best. Sure. If I sat down to write them, I'd be trying to capture that. Yeah. Voice, you know. So to get them in transcripts as the told version, that was. Uh, yeah, it's the only thing that we've ever wanted is people to be transcribing what we're saying. Yeah, exactly. As if it was so important. <laughs> exactly. I like to call it Ronnie B quotes, but that's a Twitter thing. Yeah. I need everybody to get it. I read one of those uh, yeah. on the way over here saying uh, Kevin Pollack hates us. Well, he'll never do unmasked. I read one of those Ronnie B quotes. Um,. I, I want to ask you a celebrity thing because there's a ton of this in here. Yeah, yeah. And there's a news story today where there's a fight. Well, Chris, you know this story more. But Don uh, Lemon from CNN. Yeah, from CNN. Met Jonah Hill. Yeah. And Jonah Hill, I guess, did not give him enough time. Jonah Hill said, oh, nice to meet you, and then walked on his way. So Don Lemon immediately tweeted something like he thinks he's big or stardom doesn't last so i was wondering what is it about two celebrities meeting each other uh, do you have to give each other a certain amount of time uh a blowjob is probably <laughs> too much too and, much but who gets and who gets and who receives well you know that's why you have the number 69 <laughs> um uh first of all first time meeting hicks by the way mm. Is that right? What the hell? I listen to the show every day. I do. I do. And uh, not at all what I pictured, just so you know. I don't know why I pictured more of a Brad Pitt-looking guy. I oh, thank you. Yeah, I, you have well, that kind of voice. It's probably a little closer to Clooney, but it's still there. I'll take it. Yeah, it's Clooney wrapped in Pitt. So if you run into a celebrity, another celebrity, do you feel... Hey, I usually tell them to go fuck themselves and I'm on my way. Or or how do they even know who you are? Do you assume <laughs> they're going to know you as no. well as you know them? I don't ever assume yeah. anyone is going to know who I am. Hence the title of the book. Um, I mean, you know, when because I'm a character actor, right? Right. Uh, and I don't, I, I never got pigeonholed. I never became uh, the, the star attraction mm -hmm. who uh, you hang the movie on. I get to move from different kinds of films and stories and actors and characters and so on. So, I, you know, you, you could think you recognize me because we went to school together. Right. Um, it's kind, But I finally realized it was the best of all worlds because I get work based on my work. I've had offers mm -hmm. since A Few Good Men, which is some 60-something movies ago. Um, and I get respect from my peers. I remember running into Gene Hackman, who I think the world of. Sure. And in fact, his comedic performance in the Royal Tannenbaums, yeah. maybe one of the best comedic performances of the last 25 years, just blew my mind. Phenomenal. Yeah. So I said that to him, I, I thinking, here's a compliment he doesn't normally get, yeah. and saying that I was a, just a devoted, lifelong fan. And he smiled at me in a way that suggested absolute sincerity and said, and I of you, sir. And, you know, it, it, was, it was real. 
Uh, you know, mm. you spend enough time having people blow smoke or just genuine bullshitters. You, just, you, you get a detector after a while. Right. So that's the upside, right? The downside is the guy at the dry cleaners wants to know how he knows me. <laughs> <laughs> and you get that. And I want to kill him. You get that tons. Oh, boy, sure. And, and I remember once my girlfriend and I went, <laughs> we're flying somewhere, and we're at the airport, and I dashed into the restroom, and some guy came up to her. This has happened 100 times, 1,000 times previous, so she was kind of ready. And he said, oh, where do I know your, uh, your boyfriend or your dad, whoever that is? Because she's younger. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, he, where do I know him from? And she said, and you know, that's the thing. You, you can't win with these people who say, where do I know right. you from? Because you start naming them and they get angry. They go, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. Yeah. And now I've learned to say, well, I wasn't with you when you saw it. So I don't technically could possibly. <laughs> so the guy stops her outside the measurement and says, where do I know your husband or father from? And she said, ah, I, I don't know. And then he yelled at her, just tell me! <laughs> Thinking that he was out of time. I was going to come back out of the bathroom at any moment. So he panicked and screamed at her. I mean, people are awful. Yeah. So I don't know what happened with Jonah Hill. Maybe the guy was a dick. I yeah. don't know. Or maybe Jonah Hill just saying, oh, nice to meet you, I mean, was yeah. not enough for him. <laughs> like, what the fuck? How much time do you have to give yeah. anyone? Yeah. And you would think somebody who was on TV would get that. Like, yeah. hey, Jonah Hill doesn't have to be on all the time. Does well, that's he? just it. You don't yeah. know the consequences uh, from your actions, which is why I try to be a great guy all the time. Right. Uh, but you, you, nobody's perfect, and it happens. No. Shit happens. What are you going to do? But you have worked with the biggest stars. Arguably. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as my ex-wife once said, as long as a leading man needs a best friend or an attorney, you'll continue to work. Right. And there you but have it. Bruce Willis. Yeah, four times with Bruce. Yeah. Four times yeah. with Bruce Willis. Yeah. And, and uh, the first time was uh, Whole Nine Yards. Uh-huh. Which I would not have got that film if not having known him prior. Uh, when I shot A Few Good Men, he was married to Demi Moore at the time, and he was shooting uh, the uh, Robert Zemeckis film Death Becomes Her with Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn on the soundstage next to ours. So he was loitering and hanging out on our soundstage all the time, and that's how we initially met. So by the time Whole Nine Yards comes around, he and Matthew Perry were talking to the director, Jonathan Lynn, British guy, and they, and they were suggesting me for this part of Yanni Gogolak, the Hungarian-born, Chicago-raised hitman. Uh, and... Uh, Jonathan Lynn said, well, fellas, uh, no, no, I'm a fan. You know, I've seen Kevin's work. Uh, I've seen a few good men, seen <laughs> usual suspects. He's quite diverse. But, you know, this is a comedy. <laughs> Literally. And Willis grabbed him and said, he's a comedian, you fucking idiot. So that was one of those careful what you wish moments, right? right. I mean, my career had so made a right turn uh, into Too far. To dramatic work. Yeah. That... Um, that however people discover you is how they know you. Right. You know. Yeah, whatever they see you for do, they go, well, that's what they do. Yeah. And the weird thing is, and it's weird to find that out, uh, no matter what you do in life, is people only see what exists. So if you go, all right, I have a new product that does this, they'll go, well, what is it like? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who else does this already? Yeah. They don't want anything new. They want stuff They've already seen. Yeah. People are fucked and in, 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 <laughs> they don't get creativity. Yeah. It's a thing at the studios and networks, too, mm -hmm. when you pitch something. They, they all say they want something new and fresh, and none of them do. 
And now everybody wants to be Louis C.K., even though all these years you could have made a Louis C.K. show. Well, you mean allowing someone funny and creative to do whatever they want? Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. They've had that thing. But In his case, he was smart because he said, give me less money. Right. So you don't lose anything. But then he also said, I'll direct it, edit it. But then because you know. of that, I get to do everything. Yeah. And you stay the fuck out of it. And they're so afraid because it's all about finger pointing. I learned after a long, long time at, at the bat. Th they just want to be able to point a finger away from themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. So whether it's not get fired testing, right, the horrible testing system. Right. Or or uh, w whatever those processes are, the cards, the the uh, audience cards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Barry Levinson has my favorite. I think I mentioned it in the book. Um I did Avalon with him, and the movie he did prior to that was Rain Man, a gigantic juggernaut of a hit. So because of the success of Rain Man, he was able to go into the studio for Avalon, this little tiny Baltimore set film, and say, you're, you, uh, you're not going to be able to test this movie. No, no, no audience testings on this. He doesn't appreciate my Baltimore accent, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, what do you mean we can't test it? And he said, here, look at this. And he handed him a three-by-five card. It was a test audience card from Rain Man that was filled out by an audience member. And the test card from the Rain Man screening read, hey, why didn't the little guy just snap out of it? <laughs> <laughs> so he said, that's why you can't test Avalon, because right. of that idiot. By the way, Avalon is a gorgeous film. It's beautiful. And... Wouldn't you think anybody with money who wanted to make more money, wanted to make films, you would look at Barry Levinston, his career, yeah. and we could go on. We could spend fucking 50 different films going over what he's done great. Why wouldn't you just go, I'm going to give you the Louis C.K. thing. I'm going to let you win and do it, bring it back to me, and then I'll market it. Yeah. Why wouldn't that be an easy deal? Because they're too afraid to make that kind of a brilliant decision. They, they, yeah. just, they want to point the finger and say it was him. It was his eye. We, we went to the testing, the screening. It was all great. It was that. Those are the problems. Not me. I didn't say give him the money and let him do what he wants. The other night, I'm trying to go to sleep. I turn on Wag the Dogs on TV, and I'm Forget like, it. now I'm fucking up for yeah, two oh, more yeah. hours. I'm not, not going, going to be able to yeah. get to sleep. That film is fucking genius. It's perfect. Um, well, Devin Mamet. You know, yeah. you get the right pieces together. David Mamet and Barry Levinson, and somebody wants to say, let's see what the screening says. Not these right? two fucking guys. You let them do. Not two geniuses that are walking around, but let's see what somebody off in the suburbs. Yeah. I don't remember who it was. Of. I should remember because they deserve to be remembered, who decided they wanted to be uh, Woody Allen's benefactor. And mm -hmm. just say, here's a couple of millions uh, dollars, and you just keep, every time you do a movie, we want to make it. Right. I think UA initially, United Artists, was the first one when I yeah, was Yeah, he young, had that for years. Quite younger. But he's always had that benefactor that said, you're a genius, go off and do whatever you want. Here's a few million, don't fuck it up. Um, and, you know, then there's no pressure to make a bunch of money right. when, you, when you agree to that. Sort of thing. Well, his deal now is, I'll make it in your city. So get your money together, and everybody will now see Barcelona right. the same way they saw Manhattan. Everybody will see London that way. And it's, again, it's an artist. In a way, it's almost product placement. Sure. But you end up loving it as an audience member because this Barcelona film is gorgeous. <laughs> you know, it's just fantastic. Yeah. You feel like you've been there. Yeah. And, and you're seen like, the best it has to offer. Yeah. And you're like, where should I go? Yeah. Barcelona looks great. Right. Great chicks, great food, great music. 
Right. But it is artists that are always having to fucking work their way in and out yeah. of these things to yeah. keep dancing. Yeah. Yeah, I've been uh, uh, crazy lucky myself uh, um, in, in terms of the people I've had a chance to work with. And the Carson story. You know, I that show you grow up watching sure. and you fantasize about being on it. And uh, I was a stand-up comedian at a very young age. And I'd seen all these great comedians on The Tonight Show. But by the time I got asked, I had this crazy other dream in my head about these smaller handful of performers, Albert Brooks, Steve Martin, Don Rickles, mm -hmm. uh, who did their act from the couch right. in the guise of a conversation. So when I was asked by the great gatekeeper, Jim McCauley, whose job it was to book the stand-ups on The Tonight Show, um, I tell the story much longer in the book, but he would circle comedians because you had to have two uh, uh, appearances ready. Loaded, because he lived in fear that if your first one went great, Johnny would say, "You, you need to bring that kid back. <laughs> You're right. He needs to come back in a couple of weeks. <laughs> he was fantastic. So he knew you had to have that second one ready, or Johnny would rip off his head and shit down his neck. So he was every night you at the improv, you would see Jim McCollin. You know, so one I had gone with other friends for their shots. You know, um, on the show, so I knew him well enough to say hello, and I said, "Hey, Jim, who are you here to see tonight?" He said, "Um, you." I said, no, really. And he said, well, I was here to see somebody else, but I, I think you're ready for the show. I'm going to watch your act tonight and figure out what's best. And I got, I was young, 28 years old or whatever, and I got this crazy thing, and I just spit it out, you know. And I said, look, Jim, um, you may think I'm nuts, but, and I've been waiting my whole life for this opportunity. I want to make that clear. However, um, I think I'm going to do much better from the couch. And now I've been a fan of the show, and I know there's a protocol. You can't just bring me to the couch. So... I guess what I'm saying is I'm willing to wait till I have a TV show or a movie where you can justify bringing me to the couch because I know when I do Peter Falk and John, Johnny's face, you, you want the audience to see Johnny fucking lose it. I want to, yeah, yeah, and that's where I'll have an impact. Yeah, more than standing on Absolutely. a little star and doing six minutes and getting the okay sign from the kid. Right. And he said he looked at me like I was an alien for a couple of beats, and then he said, "Well, can't disagree. I know when you sit on the couch, you will make him laugh really, really hard." Uh, do you have any movies or TV shows coming out soon? And I said, uh, no. <laughs> now, what I didn't tell him was I didn't have any prospects. Right, nothing. Was I didn't have any auditions lined up. I didn't have an agent. I just had a stupid, crazy fucking vision of the best case scenario. And I said to him, look, I may call you back in six hours and beg for this opportunity back. And he said, no, no, look, let's see how long you can wait. You're only going to get better. You're not going to get worse. This isn't bad for the show. And it's not like we're dying to have you on. I just right. thought you were ready. So, sure, take as much time as you need. You know, if you call me in six hours or six months, whatever. We'll, I'll keep an eye on you. And uh, you're, you're just going to... So it took about a year and a half before I got this movie, Willow, Ron Howard directed. And it was enough for them to justify bringing me out. I come out. Uh, as an actor, my next guest, uh, you may not know, <laughs> making his first appearance on the show is in a new Ron Howard film called Willow. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. And I came out and I sat down and, and the first one out of the shoot, he says, now, now they tell me you do impersonations. Is that right? And I just dive into Peter Falk with the one eye moving and Carson pushes himself away from the desk. He's yeah. laughing so hard. It was one of those moments. And then I'm invited back uh, three times a year until he retired. And there was one of those few moments where you could actually take the reins of your life. Yeah. And it actually went well. Yeah. You usually, you usually, it doesn't. 
No, you, you usually go, hey, I learned a lot. I fucked up from that, and I'm going to come back and get it. Yeah. But see, the weird thing, and I don't know if young people would be able to understand this. I remember as a kid loving people that made Johnny laugh. Yes. Loving. Like, I would go, okay, Rickles is on tonight. This is going to be so great because if, if they made him laugh, I don't know why it made me so much happier. I loved when people would cry. I love when Bob Newhart did yeah. the show. I could make a list of the people yeah. that I would be like looking at going, tonight's going to be fucking great because it's going to be like a party on this he show. He was not an easy laugh. When no. he liked you, he looked like... He yeah. Became an easy laugh, but it was so hard earned. Yeah, right. and that was the thrill of a lifetime for right. sure. Uh, here's an example, if I may, why he'll be the greatest of all time. So I do the Peter Falk on the first show. My second time on, Macaulay says, "Will you teach Johnny how to do just the one eye moving trick?" And I said, "Absolutely." So I taught him on the air because it's a trick. Um, and then every single time I did his show after that, every time, a couple dozen more. You would enter from his left. You would pass in front of his desk for a nanosecond on your way to sit on his right. And unlike Jay, who dances out from behind the desk to greet you, hey, how's it going? Thanks for coming. Johnny the King would stay at the throne. So he would stand, of course, out of respect, but he would stay at his desk. So you'd pass in front of him, and just for that moment, your back was to the audience before you sat down to his right. In that nanosecond, every single time, he leaned forward, shook my hand, crossed his eyes, and said, Ah, excuse me, I hate the body. <laughs> now, fucking think about that. <laughs> he made me feel like I had an inside joke right. with the king as I was sitting down. And I promise you, he had something like that with every guest that he liked or cared about as they were sitting. You know what I mean? Right. That sort of genius, I'll never fucking forget. In, in arguably the most nerve-wracking situation of the year, right. he makes me feel like I'm welcome. Please sit down. How are you? Did you feel nervous even after doing the show for 10, 20 times? Is it still... I'm one of those freak... In sports, yeah. you'd call him a phenom or a natural. Yeah. I don't get nervous. I get excited, like a nine-year-old going, right. to, going to Disneyland. Um, even the first time. I did, I did make the mistake. You talk about those moments where it doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. I made the mistake. I get a call. Every now and then, Macaulay would call and just say, uh, are you free Thursday or whatever. So one day he calls, and I'm in a wardrobe fitting for a movie, and I'm in, I'm in dressed as uh, uh, Cupid, not for the Santa Claus 2 or 3 that I, I <laughs> later did dressed as Cupid completely. But this one, it was a little sight gag for a different, different movie. So I'm dressed as Cupid. I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm talking to Macaulay. He says, can you do the show on Wednesday? And I said, you mean Halloween night? And he said, yeah, we're doing a taping of Halloween because, you know, the show tapes at five. I, so I'm looking at myself in the mirror, dressed as Cupid, and I said, uh, Jim, would it be okay if I came on the show? I'm in this Cupid outfit. They're fitting me for this movie I'm doing. It's Halloween. If I came out in a costume like this, right, ridiculous, but I look pissed off. <laughs> and I sit down and I say, what the hell? I was told everyone was wearing a costume. Right. That you were going to wear one of Doc's jackets. <laughs> Ed was going to be dressed as a Clydesdale. What the hell? So Macaulay's laughing, and he goes, great, great, let's do that. And I said, do me a favor, check with Johnny, make sure he's cool with it, because I don't want to be offensive and uh, disrespectful. So a couple days later, Macaulay called and says, I told Johnny about it, and Johnny said, if that's what Kevin wants to do, that's fine with me. So I said, great, terrific. Of course, I didn't stop to think about the way Johnny said yes. 
If that's what Kevin wants to do, that's mm-hmm. fine with me, sure. So I get in the outfit. I'm standing backstage <laughs> like an idiot, dressed as fucking Cupid. <laughs> My next guest, you may know, he's been on the show many times. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. Okay. And I come out in the <laughs> costume, and the audience is howling, and I sit down, and I do the same thing I just told you. Yeah. What the hell, Johnny? You were supposed to be dressed in this and dark and that. And everyone's laughing, and it's killing for 90 seconds that it's planned for. And then we go back to the rest of my five-minute visit, which right. is doing the rest of my material from the couch. Only now I'm dressed as Cupid. <laughs> and, you know, the other five minutes has nothing to fuck to do with Halloween. So it bombs historically. Right. Because you can't get around the fact that I look like an idiot. And I'm talking about visiting my parents for, for Thanksgiving. You know, it's got nothing to do with so, at the end of the bombing and the horrible appearance, Carson has to throw it to commercial, and he says, uh, we'll be right back right after this, and I think it's clear to say our guest Kevin Pollack learned an important lesson. You can't follow the outfit. We'll be right back. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of genius, because right. it was his way of saying, it's okay, kid. Right. Don't fucking worry about it. He gave it a shot, and you, yeah. you suck it up. But apparently something that he had learned years before oh, yeah. in sketch And the comedy. way he phrased it. Yeah. If that's what Kevin wants to do, it's fine with me. Knowing that maybe that's good TV. Yeah. Let the kid come out, choke on this Funny, thing. and then eat shit, yeah. and then I'll save it. And then I'll, then I'll get a joke in. Yeah. That's fucking great. How I Slept My Way to the Middle is uh, Kevin Pollock's. And this is, for you, this is the show business story. You, you loved show business before you got into it. Yeah. And you love the fact of telling show business stories. Yeah, yeah. In this case, firsthand mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and I call a few people out on their shit like f- for being dicks. Um, well, Rip Torn was kind of uh, f- famous after a certain point yeah. for being a little disruptive on a set. But he was really, really bad on the set of uh, Canadian Bacon, the only fiction or meant to be fiction film that Michael Moore did. Um, a comedy with John Candy. Yeah. Uh, Canadian Bacon and Alan Alda. Fun movie. But, you know, Rip Torn was just awful. He was a lunatic and just uh, shut down production almost every day with his antics, you know. And so a very funny thing happened. I don't just call people out to be dramatically upset Mm -hmm. with them. I call them out because they were a dick. And funny, something hilarious eventually happened. (laughs) Uh, And, um, you know, I I championed people also when I thought they were stand-up guys. You know, somebody like Tom Cruise who gets a lot of shit in the press for for this, that, or the other thing. My experience with him is that he was maybe one of the most inspiring and and sincerely generous professionals I'll ever work with. Mm -hmm. You know someone by the time you spend with them. In this case, four months, 12 hours a day, that's more time than I spend with my family, right? You get a sense of somebody. So, anyways. Why do you think Tom Cruise gets heat, though? Why do you think? Do you think it's because of his religion? The first thing is uh, he has an unedited enthusiasm for Mm -hmm. everything. Uh, So when he jumps on Oprah's couch, uh, people get startled. Right. What I am guessing, he jumped on Oprah's couch because he was in his 40s banging a chick in her 30s. Right. And he was really genuinely fucking excited about it and in love with her. So uh, he doesn't have an editor in his brain that says, you know what? 
maybe we don't jump on yeah. the couch. Uh, no. But did you ever go back and watch the tape? Because Oprah's jumping, the audience <laughs> is jumping. That was a fucking crazy jumping show she had anyway. Yes, and then exactly. for, So a lot of times you're going like, hey, I'm on the crazy show. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Because that could happen in morning radio. You show up and everyone's mean. You go, yeah, Anything out of context yeah. can be made yeah. pretty bad. It was the yelling at, uh, at Matt Lauer uh, on the Today Show yeah. about the, uh, the medication for... Um, uh, but at the same time, I happen to agree with him. I think far too many people are taking drugs. Yeah. But here's another thing with Matt Lauer. Look, you're basically saying your sponsor sucks. Your yeah. sponsor. They fucking, the drug companies That's buy right. up all the news things. Yeah. And you know in show business, the one thing you can't do is fuck with the cash. Right. You cannot Don't fuck get with in the way of the money. Yeah. And he did it for a moment. Um, and they've pounded him ever since. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. Um, uh, but again, your your uh, your experience with another professional is all. In my case, it's all I know. You right. know I've seen him socially at his home with other people. I've seen him um, react to um, people on the street. You know, last time I saw him was just uh, I don't know three four months ago here in New York. Um, he was shooting on the sidewalk of New York and. As you could imagine, there's police barriers set up. Right. Uh, just beyond those barriers were maybe a thousand people with camera phones or phones on their camera or cameras on their phone. And, you know, the first AD had to say to all of them, look, while we're rolling, just don't use a flash or make any sound. And then the, the rest of the time, do whatever you want. Yeah. And Tom is now three feet away from a thousand people holding up their phone to take video and pictures. And he's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then going over and saying hello in between, you know, there's just no airs about these people sometimes. And so when there when there isn't and they're not a dick, mm -hmm. I, I say it's cool to kind of champion them a little bit. You know, um, Kevin Smith kind of ripped uh, Bruce right. in his film but you didn't you didn't have My, that you know I I think Bruce is harder on directors than he is his fellow right. actors so if you're his director I think you get tested and you get you know shown to the door if you can't uh master your own universe he uh he has his own uh, process with directors mm -hmm. which is wildly different than how he reacts to actors we've done four movies together and you know, I've, again, been to his home with his family. He's got the South Jersey authority thing, like, please yeah. don't act like yeah. you're bringing this shit around here. No yeah. matter who it is. No, no matter who, who it Kevin? is. Yeah, no, uh, or Bruce, oh. where he doesn't want people saying, I want you to be here by this time or that time, you know? Yeah. I totally get him. I totally, I mean, I hate my bosses, and they're fantastic. It's just something, it's just something that you're raised with. Yeah. Like, who's in charge here? Where does that shit come well, from? Well, one of the things I go into a little bit in the book is uh, one of the reasons I was able to be happy and comfortable in the middle mm -hmm. um, is that that rarefied air that some of those A++ superstars live in is actually not an enviable life. Financial security is all we really want. Right. Um, maybe a private jet once in your life or sit on the beach with naked women. But really it's just financial security and comfort. That, that's what we're all kind of craving when we see the movie stars, I think. Because yeah. I promise me, I promise you, the rest of it, of their life, not enviable. No life at all, actually. What's the rough part? What's the... It's not rough. It's just you have to change your life in every possible way because of being, unlike me, uh, uh, who has to face the Spanish Inquisition at the dry cleaner, 
everywhere they go in the real world, mm-hmm. they are instantly chased, screamed at, uh, you know, asked of, right. basically. Fun once, but you don't want to live that way. It's fun for the first six weeks yeah. when you go, wow, look at this, I'm somebody. And mm-hmm. then if it's really, again, that rarefied air. And I understand most people's take is, hey, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. You know, this is part right. of the job. You Fine. Walk a mile in those shoes right. for a minute. And it's kind of horrible. Uh, so now they all find a way to make it pleasant and wonderful and, and create diversions. And, you know, sometimes you send out a car out of the apartment building that, that's the, the, not your car. that ever, mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff. But if every time you go outside, it's yeah. like a CIA uh, co-op, you know, black ops operation. You know, it's, it's like a nightmare. I, so, anywho, um, to to get to know these people who live in that fucked up world just a little bit, you not only get a sense of no, 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 thanks, you can have it, right? But also, kind of a respect for this thing they now live with. You know, it's truly careful what you wish. Mm-hmm. And in their case, like when people even say to me at my level. Uh, sorry to bother you, man. I don't, I don't mean to geek out on you, but I, you know, I just think your stuff is great. I always say it beats the shit out of the alternative, mm-hmm. where you don't know who the fuck I am and nobody cares. Uh, so I know that exists for them on some level too. It beats the alternative, sure. You know, because there's nothing worse than falling from that. You know what I mean? Like people love the people who had it yeah. and then don't have it anymore. Love to build you up to tear you down. Yeah. Yeah, and then give you the Mickey Rourke moment of no. Now we're bringing you back, right? You know, now <laughs> hey, look, now you're back here. We're so nice, fucking. We're vicious with yeah. celebrities in this country, isn't it? Something. Yeah, we really are. Um, the other weird uh, part of it for you is that did you ever take lessons in anything? Did you take That's acting? The weird part. Yeah. That's the phenom natural. It's just thing. there. You know, you don't I mean, know I- why. I never took an acting class because a I hate hated school. B I couldn't understand why you I would want an out of work actor training me how to do it. Uh, but more importantly, uh, clearly, I was protecting myself from failure. Mm. I figured if I went to a class, I would be found out that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing in front of other people. Right. But because I've been doing stand up already for ten twelve years. Uh, by the time I moved to San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, um, I had that fearlessness in me that I could go into an audition room and not be intimidated. Um, having said that, I had to learn on my feet how to audition by failing, and I had to learn how to fit in in this on the set and do your thing. And yeah, I was lucky in the case of Barry Levinson on Avalon, seriously, yeah. because he cast a, a comedian in every one of his films. He mentioned Wag the Dog, Dennis Leary. Yeah. Um, um, I forget the one with uh, Demi Moore. He had Dennis Miller cast in that one. Um, Paul Reiser in Diner. Jackie Gale in Tin Men. Um, even Robert Wall on top of Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam. Me in Avalon. He puts a comedian in almost every movie. Any reason why? Do you know? Well, he started as a stand-up comedian. Mm. He and Craig T. Nelson were a comedy team, if you want to fathom that one. Yeah. And a writer, a great writer. Yeah. And uh, it was insanely lucky for me that my first real dramatic acting in that movie was by a director, in this case, Barry Levinson, who hates to see anyone acting. He just wants everyone to be loose, natural, and uh, and real. And fortunately for me, that's all I could do. If he wanted to see acting, he was not going to get it out of me. Right. 
So he had seen me at the improv in L.A. and had, had had me come in and audition for a couple of other things. And then with um with with Avalon, you know, there's a longer story in the book about how I got the job. But so I get the thing, and then it's like now I'm a dramatic actor when I was just being loose and easy and comfortable mm-hmm. on camera. That's all I could do at that point. And then it was just learn, earn while you learn, you know. Right. And on A Few Good Men, the great character actor J.T. Walsh. So how does somebody be loose when you got these cameras and you know money's being spent and you know everybody needs you to do it perfectly that time? And You have to suffer from hey, look at me disease yeah. in a real, real big way, uh, which I did at such a young age that you, if, if, when people meet comedians, you know, they'll say, Man, I can never do that. You know, even De Niro was like, "How do you do that? Seriously, mm-hmm. you get up on stage, no script, you just talk." That's crazy. Um, for those of us that do it, it's not hard. It's not crazy. Mm-hmm. It's where we're most comfortable, uh, having control, and living and dying by your own wits on a moment by moment basis. That high wire act is the greatest drug ever invented. Yeah, which is why so many of them chase drugs and alcohol, trying to recreate that high because it's it's an, you can't beat it. Because being off stage is tough for... Well, yeah, because that's reality. So uh, if you suffer from that, that need to be on stage (laughs) and be the center of everyone's (laughs) fucking attention, then the cameras are a piece of cake. (laughs) Honestly. That's what you wanted to be born with. Yeah, yeah. I think the harder thing is when a bunch of comedians get together, and then who's the center of attention? Yeah. Oh, I know, Robin Williams. (laughs) Don't be frightened. (laughs) No matter what. Yeah. Yeah, well... Listen, we all have varying degrees of competitiveness in us, too. Mm-hmm. It's a ruthless art form, stand-up comedy. The classic example being there, there's a curtain, and beyond that is the comic on stage, so you're technically backstage, right? Comic on stage, t- finishing his act, you're just behind the curtain listening. And that comedian finishes, and he comes through the curtain backstage, passing you, knowing you're about to go on, and he says... Follow that motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, that's the kind of common thread among us. Uh, the sort of brethren of you live and die by your own wits or get the fuck out, you know. Kevin uh, Pollock, it's how I slept my way to the middle. We are going to get you to do an MS. I definitely win it. I'm devoted to the opportunity. Okay. And I listen to this show every day, mm. honestly, uh, and a big, huge fan. Um, a crazy excited for Fez's victory a couple days ago. Oh boy, is he that happy. was sweet, are wasn't just, it? It was beyond as, sweet. Are you just as happy as him? I mean, I bet. Well, sure, but I mean, yeah. I bet. Oh, look, I voted for Obama. Oprah told me to. I'm not stupid. Sure, I don't want her coming back to the house. Uh, but I, I am a betting man my whole life. So to see someone call fifty out of fifty, I, I, you know, it's fifty out of fifty, and put my citizenship on the line, <laughs> literally. Yeah, I mean, come on. Whether you agree or not, you got to tip the hat. And then he, Romney concedes Florida yesterday, 332 electoral votes. Al Gore still hasn't. It's a uh, it's crush. It's a crush. It, it really is. was. Yeah. And yet they didn't, they did not tell us it was going to be that bad. Only Nate Silver. And every day after the show, Fez and I would go over to Nate Silver and go, I don't know whether this is right or not. He seems to be sure. No one else is saying it. But we turned it into... It felt more like, I don't know, like sports yeah, or, yeah, yeah. you know, playing war. It had nothing really to do with policy anymore. Nope. Uh, but I don't know Stratego. who Obama has around him. But they are fucking killers. Those Chicago guys yeah. beat the shit out of the Romney guys. Well, yeah, in the sense that they went into the war zones, the swing states. Right. That's where they just 
outbeat them. They had they 10 are. states yeah. is where it's going to sell this. They yeah. won nine out of the 10. But then if you look at what they did, and I've been going after this yeah. since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they go after certain fucking counties that yes. they left some counties alone. Yeah, and said if we're going. They're going to get this much, so we're going to double that in this county. By the way, in Ohio, it, they went uh, devilishly after Cleveland. There you go. It's by the way, no different than the strategic decisions made by the manager of a baseball team. Is it very much money? Do ball. your fucking homework. Very, very much money ball. Yeah. And the weird thing is, the Republicans. I guess they never read Money Ball. They did not realize that this kind of stuff was yeah. coming down. They didn't even read Nate Silver. It's hard to believe. Three and, Nights in August, by the way, is a great, great book. Uh, Buzz Bissinger, the guy that wrote Friday Night Lights, mm-hmm. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, he wrote this baseball book with Tony La Russa through uh, the eyes of a manager, the game, right. the game, and how it's run. Three Nights in August, uh, highly recommend, and it speaks to that thing that you have to, you have to beat the system. Well, here's the weird thing about La Russa. He was in here not too long ago. He doesn't really care about anything other than Doesn't baseball. know anything else. Yeah. Other I, than animals. He wants to protect the animals. I did the Dream Week thing before down in Florida, oh. and Larry Boa was the coach. And I swear to you, he's never heard of the Beatles. Nope. He has no idea <laughs> Star Wars. This is all crazy to him. But he could tell you everything there is to know about baseball. They're savants. Everything. Yeah. They're absolutely savants. But bring up anything outside nope. of baseball. He just doesn't know what you're talking about. Can't can't function. Yeah. yeah. All right, we got to take a break. Coming up next is Andy Summers. Andy Summers from the Police. He's got a new documentary out called "I Can't Stand Losing You." Yep. Uh, it's terrific. Kevin, let's hook up again. It was great having you come. Huge in. fan. Can't wait. All let's right. do it again, we'll please. See you soon. Thank you. You're listening to the Ron and Fez Show. More Ron and Fez coming up. It's the Ron and Fez show uh, coming up in just a couple minutes. Uh, interview with Andy Summers. His documentary is happening this weekend. Can't stand losing you uh, about uh, being in the police and what that ride was like. Uh, Hicks, did you uh, blind pick a winner? Yeah, I blind picked. Who do you got? Eric at VA Tech wins. The wins. copy of Some Kind of Monster signed by the directors of the film, Joe Berlinger, Brian Kuski. Now, the lovely Holly was just telling us that she hasn't been a winner in, in many, many years. Right. So I want Holly to win a big prize today. All right. Holly will win a prize. And that's how easy it is, Holly. Sometimes you just have to say, I want to win a prize, and you win it. Uh, Polo, you coming down to see some of these docs with us tonight? Absolutely, sir. Want to go to Jason Becker doc tonight? Absolutely. You guys don't have something gay that you're doing? Uh, we're saving that for the weekend. It's going to be a packed weekend. We're going to get packed. S, S to S, all that kind of stuff. Um, all right. Uh, I guess we'll do uh, Andy Summers right into the end of the show today. Uh, if you uh, want to check this out, it's the world premiere of Can't Stop Losing You. That's 630 tonight at the SVA Theater. Uh, an extra set of tickets to... To see tonight, if you're in for this doc festival um, at the IFC in New York City, where we're going to be hanging out, a, a chance to pick up tickets for the Jason Becker doc. Give us a call at 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ, 
866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Uh, but the world premiere of Can't Stop Losing You, when I sat down and watched it, I forgot what a gigantic band that the police were. And I forgot when they did their last show, they had the number one album in the country, actually in the world, <coughs> and the number one song in their world. And they basically said to each other, well, we can't do any more, so let's just quit now at top. And when I say they said that to each other, Sting said it to both of the other two guys. <laughs> oh. But I and I forgot about this. They were at some festival. They took off their instruments and handed them to you too. Holy! And this kind of ceremony of, all right, now you guys take it. You carry this and run with it. Yeah, and it went into Joshua Tree. And Fuck. Um, yeah, it was a very very big band. A phenomenal drummer of that band. You know, people just think of the pop songs of Sting, but phenomenal drummer, phenomenal guitar player. And of course, you know, Sting is the front man and women like him and he can write songs. And they were just a gigantic band. And to only do that with three players. You know, normally when you hear about three players, it's cream, it's some power trio. You know, <laughs> you don't get three guys to make dance and pop songs but they're a very freakish band they pulled it off um well andy summers had recorded all this stuff took pictures wrote journals did photojournalism and went out and and this film was kind of about that time um the early 80s and then 2007 when they came back after being away for 25 years and played a world tour of football stadiums wherever they went and you can forget how big, you know, uh, bands are. You can forget about that, but that was a gigantic band. I was crushed when they broke up, and I never got to see them live, and I was so devastated. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Isn't that weird? That it was one of those bands that they could have played their entire lives. And Sting was like, now I'm breaking up, and I'm going to get seven guys and start a jazz band. Oh. And do the dream of the blue turtles or whatever. And I, I remember seeing that tour going, okay, but you could be <laughs> playing gigantic places. But they were one of those bands that got like Van Halen got into little fighting, little fisticuffs. Every band does. Mm -hmm. Every band um, fights with each other. Andrew, you're on the Ron Fez show. Hey, Ronnie, how you doing? There's yeah. a great video on YouTube of uh, Stuart Copeland. Doing so lonely live, and uh, he looks like he's about 18 years old, and he's just killing it on the drums. Stuart Copeland is a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, drummer. You'll pick it up in this. But you know, go back to Paul O's thing. Guys that are in bands or in submarines will hate each other. That's an eventual thing. You're like, I can't keep hanging out with someone so fucking dense. And stupid. Such a does, and then not have sex with them. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. That's why if you if you go like an actor, you go from one project to the next. You're like, oh, we spent a short time together. That was great. In another two years, we should spend a short time together again. It's going to be great for us. But if you're there every day, you eventually get around and say, oh, you know, I just figured out what I really hate What's that? about you. And it's your face. Oh. It's your fucking face. I can't fucking change my face. The way you breathe in between every sentence just makes human. me sick. It's the way you do it. 
You fucking sound like you got cheesecloth. You breathe too. You and you just, you just like, you're fucking, every breath is I a smoke. choke I for you. I fucking smoke. And it's the give and take that we have, Holly. That's what works. And I hope that works in your thing. When I think of me, Fez, and Hicks as the police, where you got two guys trading back and forth, and the other one's like looking out. <laughs> and he's gone to, eventually he's gone to say something. All right? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Oh, just didn't happen. He's been uh, very talkative today. He did. Well, he's got the election has been so exciting for him. The election has been so exciting. And when do you think that excitement leaves, Fez, and you just get back into now it's real life again? Um, I'll be going till Inauguration Day with this. All right. That's what, January? January 20th. Yeah, that's too long. Come on. Yeah. We've got four years, Fez. Four years to Exactly. Get it. Let's enjoy every second every of it. Every second. Yeah, I don't. I think then you get back into living life, not being elected. Then you get back to what are we supposed to do as Americans? Well, every time Obama cries, we'll do a shot. You're gonna be. You're gonna ruin your liver because <laughs> that pussy's never stopping crying. Waterworks. Name of the president's Waterworks. Yeah, okay, got it. Because he cries a lot. A lot of liquid. All right, so let's go into uh, Can't Stand Losing You with the one and only, and I guess there's no one else, Andy Summers. Can't Stand Losing You is happening Friday, November 9th at 6.30 at the SAV Theater. It's all part of Doc New York. Andy, welcome to the show. How are you, my friend? Well, it's great to be here, Ron, but uh, actually been a shattering 24 hours. Is that right? Yeah, I'll tell you why. No, because I got on the plane yesterday. First off, I got a call at 6 o'clock yesterday mm-hmm. morning. The flight's cancelled. It was supposed to be our 9 o'clock flight. Then we got bumped to 11 o'clock. Seats got changed, downgraded. 
downgraded. Downgraded. Okay, great. Then we start flying to New York. Get within about an hour in New York. They say, we're going to have to drop you in Detroit. Uh, Go to Detroit. Spend the whole night in Detroit. No bags. Got to, you know, somewhere in Detroit last night. And uh, four hours at JFK this morning. No bags yet. So, anyway... That's Other why we call that, it the blues, yeah. <laughs> well, you are a world traveler, though. One thing about the yeah. police, I remember when they broke, you guys broke everywhere in the world, right? Just about. Pretty much. Yeah, it was one of the notable features of the band that was so you know great that we seemed to be internationally accepted. We weren't, like, you know, some British bands at the time, you know, you know not to say this in a derogatory way, but bands like, say, The Specials or something, that right. were very, very hardcore London scene um the way they sang it they didn't really translate so well outside of the country i'm generalizing a little bit no but, but i understand there's did. there's plenty of great bands that don't cross the atlantic that don't right. make it over right. here sure. bands that are superstars Absolutely. and then there's uh plenty of bands that can play uh basically uh england and america and maybe canada some Japan, but you guys worldwide, and almost, which I think is most unique, broke almost worldwide, wasn't it? I mean, pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was an incredible time, but you know, like if we got a number one in England, we also knew that we got it in Belgium, Holland, Italy, Germany, Spain, Portugal, right. it probably Japan. You know, it was it was all the time. You know, we never got a gold disc for one one gold disc for one single. It was always like you know twelve. There's going to be at least twelve of these <laughs> yeah. suckers. You know, so. Yeah, it was great. But on the other hand, what's really interesting here in New York, one of the legendary shows, the CBGBs. Absolutely. Where everybody would still talk about it as long as CBGBs was around. And no one ever thought of what you guys were doing, of course, as punk. But that was one of the things that you guys were able to play a lot of different places. Yeah, we were, you know, the genesis of the band was definitely in the punk scene in London in the mm -hmm. 1978, really. And... You know, an obvious, well, not obvious, because we felt very privileged, actually, at the time, because we regarded it as the mecca of punk and new wave, and that was CBGB's in New York. Right. So we came to the States, U.S., for the first time, and the first gig we played was CBGB's. Which uh, is kind of cool and very, very rare thing to be able to pull off to come over. From yeah. The yeah, I mean, we were so excited. I mean, actually, what happened, you know, Stuart, of course, is American, mm -hmm. and his fa lived in England, but his father was in New York at the time. So Stuart was over here for about a week before us, but Sting and I came over together on the plane, got off at 11 o'clock at night, and we were on stage at CBGB's at about midnight, you know, and with mm -hmm. all the grunge and everything. But, you know, we should have been just wiped out, you know, not actually on the bed, but, man, we were so wired, yeah, so happy to be uh, in America and playing at CBGB's. It was a real high. Well, one of the great things about your documentary is seeing the band at all these different, uh, stages of the career, including today. And you get that thing because the police are one of those bands that you just kind of take for granted that this is a great band. But watching you guys play, it's a great band. I mean, a great drummer, great yeah, guitar yeah, player. Yeah. And, of course, Sting's, yeah. you know, Sting being that, Sting. Yeah. Uh, a legitimate yeah. legitimate rock star. Doesn't happen too often. No. That kind of chemistry. You know, people say, well, what was it? You know, I say, yeah. well, look, you know what? You, can, you can't really analyze it because there's only three people who could do that. And it was so fortuitous and magical for the, that we were the three people that met and this thing happened. Yeah. One guy out, it's not the same. How you quick know. did you pick up on it? Because you had played in a lot of bands before this. and Yeah. 
Well, you know, I mean, that, the little mini history at the beginning of the band, you know, I, I, this has all been documented, but, you know, the, we got together. Uh, uh, somebody else in London got us together, Stuart and me and Sting. Sting Stuart already had the police with another guitarist, but uh, we were brought together, the three of us, in this other bass player. So we had two bass players to do a one-off project in Paris. But we rehearsed a lot. We rehearsed for about three weeks and... Uh, dare I say this on serious radio? Yeah. I was a lot better than the guitar player. Uh, <laughs> I won't follow that avenue too much. But anyway, we definitely connected big time. And after we did this concert in Paris, it was like... This is going to be something. You know what, well, yeah. guys? You know, Sting really wanted it to happen. And, you know, then the rest is, you know, it's kind of in the film and it's in the book about the one train later. And I met Stuart on a train like two days later and we were sort of laughing about the... Coincidence, of course, from that moment, the police were born for real. Yeah. You know. And not just being a, you know, a great band, but ambitious guys, right? I mean, you guys yeah. really did want to be big. You know, not just, oh, we want to have a good band. You guys really wanted to be big. Yeah, you know, I guess we did. It was, uh -huh. Obviously, we wouldn't have worked so hard. It was, it was incipient. But, I mean, I think at the beginning, we were so, you know, down and out. You know, we're literally living hand to mouth. It's the classic story, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think we we could, if we could earn a living as a band, and just be a band, that would be great. Yeah. Um, but of course, you get a little taste of that, and we really got the first taste of it here in New York, in this country. And then one thing led to another. Before you know it, then you're starting to think, you know, we could be really big. You yeah, know, really, just, uh, really. I just like working in clubs, but you know what? You know, and and in fact, it happened. But well, we wanted it. It's true. Yeah, and it is also one of those things of being a sign of your time of just when the band is getting big. Here's MTV. Mm. And you were the type of band that is visually appealing. There right. was a lot of bands at the time yeah. not so visually appealing, and they went away. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we def definitely had that appeal as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, excuse me, madam. <laughs> um, yeah, we were pretty boys, you know. Yeah. Everybody liked that. We all had blonde hair, which was a little device we used very early in our career to try and get people to notice us, that we all had this bleached blonde hair. So, we, you know, it's all, we were very lucky because we, had, we did have the music. You know, we had a great singer, strong song. Everyone could play. Um, we came out of a, a moment when everything was in ferment, like the punk mm -hmm. era. People in America wanted to know what it was. But we turned up. But they were a bit scared of it on radio, particularly, you know, a bit leery about the Sex Pistols, so on and so right. forth. I hadn't really gone over too well. But then we turned up uh, with, you know, sort of a punk band, but kind of a bit new wave. But we had this song called Roxanne. And this yeah. is really what t turned everybody on. And we were, we could talk, you know, we went on to the stage, everybody liked talking to us. And, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I don't take luck out of the picture at all. I think it was timing and luck. Uh, but luckily... For us, we had the goods as well. You know? Yeah, there was uh, plenty of experience, plenty of background. You know, even when you're talking about being, you know, broke at the time, your name popped up as maybe being in the Rolling Stones, I guess, replacing Mick Taylor at mm. one time. To yes. hear that had to be remarkable, you know? <laughs> I mean, to even hear it today yeah. would yeah. still be like, yeah. really? Yeah. Yes. Well, of course, I was in London at that time, and I was very much on the scene, and I was getting written about personally. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I was I was actually sort of my star was rising, and there would have been, you know, if I joined the Stones, it probably would have worked out fine. I'm an English bloke, started out with that, right. all started together. 
There was a, there's a certain logic to that, but oddly enough, I took a total turn to the left and joined this like complete unknown <laughs> punk band yeah. with no future whatsoever. <laughs> but there you go. And there it is, all happening at the same time. You all know? together, all yeah. happening at the same time. Yeah. When um, did you go and actually audition for the Stones, or no, was just I, name I in the mix? No, but you know, like I mean, you, know, you view it whichever way you like. Yeah. But I, I couldn't help a little feeling of satisfaction, not to make a pun. <laughs> um, a few years later, when we were probably 1983, when we we definitely ruled the world and right. were the number one band, and uh, Mick turned up, and I think it was like Hartford, Connecticut. He came to the dressing room, and there suddenly, you know, Mick Jagger's in the dressing room. He's, he's looking, oh, you know, taking it all in, and he stood at the side of the stage with his arms folded, watched the whole show. He was checking it out. Sure. You know, you know, Mick like, oh, is a competitive guy, yes. and he's, he's a business guy as well, which is interesting because, I mean, how big bigger could you get, and yet he still keeps an eye on everybody else. That's right. You know? You know they want to stay in the seat. They're being current, seeing what's going on, you know. Yeah, because apart from let's just say Mick like the band and you know he's he's thinking commercially, he's thinking about the business. Like, right. what are they doing? What are, what are they drawing? He's checking it out. Yeah, absolutely checking it out. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the two worst things that can happen to a band, of course, is failure, and then the other being success. They're mm. both really, really difficult mm -hmm. to deal with mm -hmm. because who. How many people even understand what it's like to have that kind of success that you guys... I mean, just think... It's yeah. kind of a once-a-generation, once-every-ten yeah. years. Well, as big as we were, because you know, probably, you know, kids I don't actually realize. We were virtually like the Beatles. I mean, it, right. I mean, we got to the point where you... I mean, it just all sort of sounds ridiculous now. But back at that point, particularly in day, we really literally could not go to a restaurant, walk the street... Leave the hotel room. Mm -hmm. Bodyguard. I mean, it just got kind of the insanity point. Gossip um, pages, all that yeah. kind of stuff. And you know, I mean, it's not like oh, poor little rock star yeah. syndrome. But you know, I was talking to somebody earlier today. You know, like you know, to get all the way up there and sustain it, and always be on, and always be good, and all that. You know, you've got to be pretty tough. Yeah, and you've got to want it. A lot of people break early, and they don't. They don't stay the course. So you know. Because it always sounds like a poor little me, but, you know, the kind of success and fame does take a bit of handling. A lot of people turn to drugs, obviously. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you do that, well, you know which way that goes. Or drink or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know. But you've got to have the, uh, what do they call it, intestinal fortitude. To get right, because because uh, anything that you use as a crutch is only going to be for a short time. It won't time. sustain you. Yeah, it no. will not sustain. I think one thing about us, not that we were good boys or anything, but I think we realized once we started doing like massive tours, you know, I mean, our tours would go on six months, seven months. I mean, it seemed we, we pretty much toured for seven years without a break. That's what it felt like. The only break we would get is if we went to make a record and then go straight back on the road. Yeah. But I think we realized fairly early on that we can't do the drug thing that to to that extent. It's just insane. It, you know, the party every single night, because every time we played, everybody wants to be with you. Sure. You know, and they want to go somewhere, and they want to just get completely ripped. How, how many nights do you do? And then you've got to play again next night. Well, then you've got to take some more drugs to do it. So it's this sort of downward cycle. I think, you know, the three of us, in a way, I like to think that's watched out for one another, and it's only three of us, so there are, there, you, you can't have a weak link. Yeah, you ever. Know, no one's, you know, if Sting's not singing right, it's it's not going to be good. If Stuart can't play, we're really, you know. Yeah, there's nobody to cover for you out no there. No one covering. So, 
I think we kind of held it together with the three of us, which I'm quite proud of. Well, the other thing is when the band kind of broke up, um, which I don't know if bands ever really break up, but when you mm. stop there for a long time, you were as big as you could get. You had the number one album, the number yeah. one single, the number one tour. Who No one is used to people walking away at that exact yeah. point. Yeah. Well, it's a very brave thing to do, you know, um, I mean, I think it was a very, very thing Sting to do because, you know, I mean, mm. it's all documented. There's no news here. He he wanted to go it alone. He didn't want to do it anymore. We made five albums, which we were contracted for, for A&M Records. And then came the point when, uh, you know, right at the top of the curve, you know, he'd sort of say philosophically, we're at the top now. I don't think we can get any bigger than this. We could have because we could have kept going forever. Sure. We just got out of the way for a band like you 2 to take over the spot. But that's what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a part of me that sort of went along with it, weirdly enough, because we were so, we were drowning in all that incredible stuff at the time. And so that's that's what happened, you know. So uh, it was kind of a poignant thing to happen. And at the same time, it was sort of a relief, but it was also very gutsy. Mm-hmm. But the, one th- the good side about it, the silver lining, is it left an incredible amount of need from the audience out there that hadn't had enough yeah. of it. You know, why do they stop so early, you know? They, Hence, you you know, fast forward, come to the U- reunion tour of 07, 08. There are a lot of people who want to see the band. Now you're walking out in stadiums yeah. where Incredible. most bands have never had that experience yeah. of just your show yeah. in the stadium. And you guys have a yeah. tour of that. Yeah, yeah. all um, stadiums. It was like one of the biggest tours of all time. And uh, almost like, you know, you literally bigger than ever. It was sort of phenomenal and, you know, kind of a shocker. Well... The uh, one of the parts of the film I don't want to give too much away, but it was the first time that your kids really saw you as mm-hmm. a member mm-hmm. of the police. Mm-hmm. They they live with you, for, in, you know, yeah. as their dad. Yes, but here, wait, he's also in this gigantic yeah. band. Yeah. Well, thanks for mentioning that because you know, in a strange little ironic way, that was the most satisfying thing about all of, you know the yeah. whole that finally my kids, you know, obviously I grow up with my kids and go. Well, you know, I used to be in a restaurant band. Kids. <laughs> oh, yeah, Dad. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Go back to whatever. But, um, but it came true. And yeah. they turned up and their mum said, Hey, you know, you haven't seen your father like this. Get ready. You know, and then, of course, they turned up at the first show, which was, I think we did in Vancouver. There was 19,000 people. And they went, Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, didn't know you could move like that. <laughs> it's fun. Um, one of the great things, too, is that you took so many pictures. Yeah. You're setting this up, but you've always been in the photography. Yeah. And um, there does seem to be some kind of connection, I think, between guitar players and the visual arts. I've yeah. never really, you know... I, I think there's a real cogent argument for that, you know, the relationship between music and visual arts. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I made various pompous statements about this over the years, you know, like I'd you know, like to see a photograph like a chord mm-hmm. where it's got harmonic qualities, you know. I try to swap <laughs> these things about. <laughs> you know, you can go down that route as far as you like. But, um, you know, then I also say along these lines that, you know, one of the qualities I look for in, um, you know, like, well, just say photography or visual art is music. I'm looking for the quality of music as I would in literature, too. You know, a photographer I, I was very drawn to and became friends with in New York is Ralph Gibson. He's a great New York photographer, one of the real mm-hmm. greats. I didn't know him at all. Um, and I saw his books and I was, when I was really starting into it. and thought, oh, man, they like music. It's so beautiful. There's this flow. 
And, of course, eventually I met him and we got to be good friends. And, you know, of course, he's a guitar player and totally music buff and everything. Mm -hmm. So we, we've long had this conversation swapping backwards and forwards about, you know, music and photography in particular, how you can sort of swap the information from one medium to the other. And it's a very healthy thing, I think. And it's so funny that we don't think of that. Like, we want to put people... See if that's staying. Another tour coming back together. And it could always happen. I told you never to call me again. <laughs> <laughs> it's over, goddammit. Oh it's God. done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, we, but we really think about putting people in whatever box. But really it just comes down to, I guess, being an artist. You know? Using that sure. same kind of sensibility. Absolutely. That's what I've always said to people. Oh, we can only do one thing. No, you know, if somebody's really got something... In the area, it's really the odds are pretty high that they might carry it into another medium. Mm -hmm. They really might, you know. Not absolutely, because one side of me says, you can only do one really to the max. But you could probably be very good in another one as well. You know, I, I think that's completely possible. You see it a lot, actually. Yeah, and it gives you that chance, I think, to step back and not do something that's going to be judged by everybody immediately. Right. I mean, the way, of course, the police weren't going to put out an album without there being a certain amount of stress. But you can put together your photography if not everybody in the world is waiting for it at the same right. time. Right, yeah. I mean, I mean, on the photography thing, uh, you know, I guess it was incipient it was in me anyway and my i grew up with a brother who was obsessed with cameras and probably like most people i fought around with cameras but it was really in new york that i said you know what i think i'm gonna get a really good camera you know for the first time i had enough dough to go out and get something i went i think i'd like b and h and bought like a nikon and mm -hmm. a 50 millimeter lens and and then there were so many photographers around anyway i started i started to really get into it and i started studying it and getting better at it you know and i, and I ended mm -hmm. up lugging cameras pretty much for the next seven years with, you know and i pretty much shot the whole uh, career of the police from beginning to end and then put it all away you know mm -hmm. you know and finally somebody got you know a few years ago well actually it came out as a book on tashin in uh, 07 but it was a great thing for me because it was a way to uh kind of process the experience of this amazing band and this life experience we were going through in another way and seeing, yeah, it's not just being an emotionally drowning in it all the time, right. you know, but also to step back and go, you know, I can think, I think I'll make a great shot here. Sure. You know. Because who else gets that vantage point? Very no, few I, people why, have that vantage yeah, point. that's why yeah. I was right in the middle of the eye of the hurricane, as it were. And when I finally started showing these pictures to people, there was a lot of interest, you know, mm -hmm. including, you know, ended up with Benedict Tashney, who's the owner of Tashin books it was a great document you know and i had all the diaries and journals and i added a few things to it so once we finally put the whole thing together it was a substantial piece of work that was sort of um not done in any self-conscious way i was right. i was having fun doing it well when the, also the journaling journaling that you did you can go back and find out where you were in that place in time yeah. and compare that to now because again when you're not in the eye of the hurricane, it, it gives you a better chance to go, oh, we should have done this or why not. But yeah. at that time, you know, the yeah. full pressure of being in the biggest band in the world. Yeah. You know, I wasn't the biggest band in the world, but I always had my camera with yeah. me. Yeah. You know, it, you know, it didn't matter if we were like, you know, flying in a helicopter over Manhattan to get to Meadowlands or whatever. I was shooting out of the window, you know, I kept moving all these things. And I'd shoot every detail of every hotel. You know, it became 
you know, certainly towards the end of that period, I felt like I was doing two jobs absolutely really? full on. Yeah, because I think I did get more self-conscious in the last couple of years of the police, where I was like photographing everything and, and kind of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, every time someone was photographing us, I was photographing them. Sometimes we'd be in front of a phalanx of photographers and I'd be shooting them. <laughs> They'd all be laughing. But I'd be getting the great, the best pictures. Right. Yeah. Um, you kind of brought, brought up that you became an asshole a little bit <laughs> in <laughs> the middle doesn't. of being yeah, a rock I still man. am, actually. You know. is, is that impossible not to do, though, once you you get to that yeah, point? I think you it creeps lose... up on you. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think one of the things... If you get privileged enough to get into this place of success and, you know, all the stuff that goes with it because a certain kind of power goes with it, you have power over people. Right. And you've got to be very careful not to abuse that power. Um, But I think it kind of creeps up on you. And, you know, I think there are other things too. You get absolutely exhausted. So much is expected of you all the time. We're talking about high-level success here, Mm -hmm. not immediate. You know, when you're really on all the time like that, I think you can get a little bit, precious about yourself sure well there's three of you and then there's not just the band but everybody else is depending on these tours and these albums to get paid themselves so you really become the industry you're a lot of other people that's right yeah um and also fighting in between the band and going over creative differences is there any way that that doesn't happen because it seems like it's a hundred percent of the time with just about every band no i i think if it wasn't like that there'd probably be something wrong Mm-hmm. Because I think it's, uh, I mean, certainly what typifies the, the best band, the best, certainly in rock, is it's, you've got to have that creative friction. It's that sort of spark, you know, the spark of the differences that, that makes the music really happen. And I think it connects to the people. Somehow. That's so interesting. So you really do need that tension to kind of rub up against each other. All right, you've got three or four mellow guys on a stage. You all really get along really well. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to sound like a banana. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And no one's ever really impressed. Like, they play like shit, but they're really nice guys. Yeah. You know, show up, nobody's going to go to that show. Yeah, no. Uh, I think it's... uh, Basically, you want to fight on stage. Yeah. (laughs) Still, I mean, the who... Uh, Mick and Keith, it's these guys have been fighting with each other for fifty years Unbelievable. now. Unbelievable! And everybody yeah. loves to write about it, and everybody yeah. loves to pick sides. But the reality of it is, how much great you know music yeah. has come well, out. Well, that's of that. what comes out. You know, uh, how about Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey? You yeah, know, it just the list goes on. Yeah, it always seems to be the singer and the lead guitarist too. I've noticed that sort of typifies most of the rock bands right. that we know about. Uh, is that how it was with the police? Or sometimes there it seemed like it was three-way battles with everybody. It's more of a three-way battle with the police. Yeah, trio sort of changes it slightly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Whereas a quartet, you know, four-piece, it sort of goes, all right, bass and drums. Right. And the guitarist and the singer out front, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the world premiere of Can't Stand Losing You. It's happening Friday, November 9th, 6.30 at the SCVA. Uh, uh, theater. That's part of the doc, uh, NYC. Yeah, and um, you're going to be doing a Q and A after yeah, that too, yeah. which would be fantastic. It's so unique. I never saw anybody go back and just give their perspective. Have the other guys in the band and the police seen this yet? Or? Well, Stuart's seen it. I know yeah. that because he emailed me one day and said, "I just saw your film." I don't know how he got it because uh-huh. nobody said, "Is it okay to send it to Stuart?" He got it, and he, yeah. but no, he was very complimentary. And very supportive, yeah. which was great. I, I felt very chuffed about that, you know. 
Sting, I haven't actually talked to about this. I did talk to him, and I know he knows that it's been done, but it was sent to his manager. He was on tour somewhere. Right. I couldn't get it to him at the time. We were trying to, like, okay, we've got to get fix this stuff, make sure the guys are okay with this, because I can't, you know, of course, they're all the way through it as yeah, well. Yeah, there's you, fantastic you, footage all the way yeah, through. you can't just put a film out with other people and say, hey, well, it's too bad for you. Yeah. You've got to ask them, you know. It's all of our music, and I'm using it to trash you guys. But I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's great because it is not the band's perspective; it's your right. perspective. Yeah. And if Sting would probably, you know, tell a different well, story or one thing, I like to think about it is it's not sanitized at all. It's, no, it's not. It's 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 you know, like the book, it, it tells the truth. You know, it's not always pretty. Yeah. You know, let's just but let's be honest because it's a much. It tells a much better story, and it's much more compelling in a human way yeah. i don't want to sanitize what went on and again it, it i think it's interesting to look back at this age of what happened to these young guys you yeah. know it, it, obviously you could go out and do those tours like you did in 07 and it could be done in a more professional manner because you bring some experience mm. and maturity to it yeah andy thank you so much for great stopping to be in. here thank and you so much i hope to see you again next time all right great. take great. care buddy great Today's Ron and Fez show. We hope you enjoyed it. For your convenience, this program will re-air tonight at 1 a.m. Eastern, mm. 11 p.m. Pacific. This show is available with SiriusXM On Demand. Go to SiriusXM.com On Demand for details. Predictably enough, the Opie and Anthony show is next on the Opie and Anthony channel.